We are live from the most shadowy corner of the internet with author, researcher, future thinker, home of the Amish 2.0, your host, Forrest Moretti. The truth behind the lies. The world's number one most reliable source for misinformation. Get ready for your mind to be blown. Hello. Hello, everyone. It's March 2nd, 2024, and we have the fortune of having Woe on the show this evening. It's going to be three hours of madness. Stick around. It's going to be a ton of fun. Hope you enjoy it. The future analyzed. The enemy identified. The weak terrified. The midwit paralyzed. The truth amplified. The sick unvaxified. The very nature of God explainified. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most interesting, the most incredible opinion on planet Earth. This is the Forrest Moretti Show. Greetings. Greetings to the planet. This is the Forrest Moretti Show. I'm your host, Forrest Moretti. If you didn't know, that was the most luxurious podcast open on the planet. Coming in at 2 minutes and 37 seconds. I had a friend, a trusted friend who told me the intro was too long and I'm here to tell you it's not long enough. There's so much that needs to be said in that intro, and that's all I could cram in there. But I hope you enjoyed that. Hope you had time to get seated, to get situated, get a beverage of choice. We have an incredible guest on, a really interesting dude named Woe. It's like The Edge, but it's Woe. Maybe, maybe in a few years he'll level up and become The Woe. But for now, it's just, whoa. Um, It's going to be interesting. He's going to come on in about 25 minutes. So uh, I'm going to get things started here before, before then and just say welcome to the show. If this is your first time here, this is the Forrest Moretti Show. I am a uh, random dude who's written a ton of books and has a ton of opinions and wants to tell the world what I think is going on, what is wrong with the world, what needs to be set right, um, and and try and have some fun doing it. Uh, because let's face it, there are definitely some, some depressing things out there. We just had four years of coronavirus hysteria to come out of. And uh, my wife and I just had a discussion about going to the grocery store and picking things up in the pickup lane 
outside the store because we wouldn't wear masks and we weren't allowed in. And there were months and months where we didn't step foot in a store. And, and it just feels so surreal that that actually happened. It, it feels like there's PTSD when we think about kind of driving our car through that pickup line, you know, because we're sort of the ostracized humans and we're not allowed to go inside. Um, so thankfully we're beyond that, but there is plenty of fun to come. I'm sure you realize that. Uh, our country has potentially uh, 310 days left in existence. Um, what is that countdown? Well, it's January 6th of next year when uh, possibly uh, a new president or an existing president will come into power. Um, by what means? Who knows? Who knows if this will happen at all? Things sometimes feel like it may not. There's certainly a lot of interesting things to be discussed about retail politics, as they call it. Uh, 854 days from now is the 250th anniversary of our dear country's birth. And as you've heard me mentioned, and I'm sure you've heard other people mentioned, this is the fate of empires. This is uh, Sir John Glubb and his observation that empires tend to last 250 years. And we are at, I believe, 248, something like that. So we are uh, probably near the end of our nation. Um, my argument would be that we're past it. We're actually just sort of the spasmodic twitching of a dead cockroach. Uh, we have all the trappings of a functioning nation, but in reality, with no borders to defend, uh, law and order being laughed at and trashed by judges and lawmakers across the land, it would appear that our nation is done for. Uh, I hope not. Um, in some ways, and I hope so in other ways. Um, a oft-needed reboot may be in effect here. Um, we have a call-in number here, 910-807-7200. Feels like old-fashioned talk radio, but I'm going to give you a number, 910-807-7200. You can leave a voicemail if you would like your voice to be heard, or you can text a message. And perhaps we'll read it. Perhaps woe will uh, stoop to listen to the plebs of the world, that is you and I, dear listener, and grace us with some wisdom, some possible encouragement from what messages we have. So please feel free to call in, leave a voicemail. Uh, we will play it. I hope if you want your voice heard, don't do that. I mean, if you do want your voice heard, uh, call in if you don't just text us a message, a question. So a um, lot going on this week. I'm sure all of you have probably been tracking um, the most important topic on Twitter in the last few days, which is um, should white girls dance in gas station parking lots? Um, this topic, this question has lit the internet on fire. If you haven't... Uh, been out of your house, if you haven't been on the internet recently, um, something very significant happened in American history, which is um, 
there was a bunch of white girls dancing at a gas station parking lot. And they, of course, made a video of it and, of course, sent it around the internet for all to see. And, of course, there were opinions to be had. And um, I'm going to go into this. I want to talk about it with Woe. I'm sure he has some interesting thoughts on it. There were plenty of interesting thoughts on it. Um, some people felt like this was innocent fun. Other people, not so much. And in the world of internet mud wrestling, this seemingly innocuous topic became an incredible firestorm. And I actually love it when this happens because, you know, we can talk about big picture ideological arguments. We can have theological disagreements. We can have political, geopolitical. We can have all these sorts of discussions and dialogue. But when there's a TikTok video of white girls dancing in a gas station parking lot, I mean, there needs to be some serious decisions to be made about whether this should happen or not. Because in truth, it is a reflection of culture, and culture is downstream from politics, as we all know, something I'm going to talk about in the monologue. Now, um, other things we may talk about uh, when Woe comes on is um, his doxing, um, an interesting story. If you don't know his story at all, he was, um, I'm not going to spoil it, but he was anonymous, and, and we'll talk about anonymity on the internet and, and why that may be a good thing or possibly a bad thing. I don't know. Something to discuss. Um, but he uh, was doxxed in a way and um, also has had some sort of run-ins with the Lutheran Church with his uh, cohort on a podcast he runs called Stung Choir Podcast. And um, I think uh, maybe... Um, his cohort will come on in a few weeks and we can have another interesting conversation to hear his side of things. Uh, their podcast is is very interesting if you haven't listened to it. Lots of good stuff on there. Lots of controversial stuff. Um, don't listen to it if you're not ready to challenge yourself or, or possibly listen to some ideas that you may find uncomfortable. But I'm sure some of you will be fine listening to it. Um, anyway... Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Greg Brannon coming on in a few weeks. If you don't know who he is, he's a really interesting guy, Senator, uh, ran for Senator. Um, he uh, essentially quit his job as a OBGYN. I think he's delivered like 25,000 babies and quit his job because he wouldn't wear a mask in the hospital. I mean, that's, uh, you want to talk about, um, you could call it petty, but I'm petty. If that's petty, I'm petty. But this is a, a, a man who's serious about his principles, and he quit his job rather than wear a mask. And he's got a new, interesting um, business, a medical field, and um, he's just a fascinating guy. I hope you guys can listen in. I think that's going to be on March 23rd. And then, of course, next week we have uh, Bill Schlegel, who was a professor at Masters University, which is John MacArthur's um, satellite school of, of his seminary, and he lived in Jerusalem for 25 years had a family there, and was kicked out of that school for his beliefs. Again, the kind of person I always find interesting. The, these are the people I want on the show. Woe uh, being the first one. Um, Bill Schlegel next week, Greg Brannon. These sorts of men have skin in the game. They put their money where their mouth is. They routinely say, damn the torpedoes, and, um, and just 
hold to their ideals no matter the cost. And I have great respect for these men. These men need to be celebrated. I'm here to lift them up. I'm here to celebrate them. And um, I hope you are too. So um, one other thing before I go on to the monologue, which is um, this is a three-hour show. We keep things light at the beginning. When Woe comes on in a few minutes, we're just going to go over his story, find out who he is, where he, where he was, how he got to where he is now. And then we're going to go into some more um, in-depth topics, um, such as uh, his time at Apple. He's, uh, as far as I can tell, has worked at Apple for quite a while, or did. And uh, we may go into what it's like to work there and how technology may or may be affecting us today through AI and some other um, tricky subjects. Um, we may talk about um, technology in general and uh, he has a really interesting podcast that he did with Corey Mahler of Stone Choir about Yahweh, the name Yahweh that we've heard. Um, is that truly the name of God? Or was there something, um, I don't want to say nefarious, but did something change um, that, that caused that name to be brought to the fore? Um, it's a fascinating podcast. I recommend you go listen to it if you haven't, because it. I, I recently wrote a book about the first commandment, and of course, Yahweh focused um, it was the focus of some of that research, and and what they said was really eye opening for me, who had recently um, done some research on that thing. So, um, if you haven't ever listened to me, I used to do a. Uh, show on Facebook and YouTube before they started banning everyone called My Incredible Opinion. It was short five, 10 minute segments on the things that I was concerned with. And you, you lucky dogs, I'm going to start the monologue again tonight. Um, my Incredible Opinion, I'm going to uh, express my opinion about something very interesting. And I think perhaps uh, maybe Woe and I can circle back after the monologue, after the break, and talk about this topic. So, without further ado... Have you ever heard the phrase, politics is downstream from culture? You ever heard that? Do you know what it means? It means you're likely to have more luck shaping the beliefs and traditions of the world around you through its culture than its laws. Laws are great and all, but they're really just a written expectation of culture. They're the expression of a set of beliefs the system which created them already has. This is what effective law is, at least. Ineffective law is the expression of what a culture or society wished were true. Maybe they used to believe it, culturally or spiritually, but once enough people stop believing it, the law becomes ineffective. In the United States, the Constitution and Bill of Rights are documents of what our culture used to believe. Sure, there are some of us who may still believe in it, but because most people don't, it has become an ineffective piece of paper. The words and the paper hold no power other than to remind people who are straying what we used to believe. This may work for a while, but at some point, there are just too many people who believe something different than the words and paper, and eventually the law becomes a joke. When the people who don't believe in the words become police officers, 
district attorneys and federal judges, then we have a real problem. What the law says and what the law is become two different things. When you reach a threshold of instability between those two differences, chaos emerges. Chaos like prosecuting a former president of the country to try and keep him from running for re-election. Chaos like shutting down nations, businesses, travel, and schools because scientists told us we should. Chaos like allowing our military to consume billions of dollars in resources and still be unable to defend our nation's borders. Chaos like imprisoning reporters for questioning things the political party in power doesn't like. This is just some of what happens when a large group of people disagree on what the law should be. This is the beginning of a long chain of events that happens, each link getting progressively worse. This chaos leads to all sorts of horrible things, and although you may see it happening and feel powerless to stop it, there is something that will likely change things. If politics is downstream from culture, culture is downstream from whatever group of men are more willing to use stigma or the threat of violence to enforce their views. At the end of the day, nothing else matters. Not laws, not tradition, nothing. Everything flows from men and the fear of violence and stigma they project. You may not like this. You may believe that laws and magic words on magic paper can shape the culture in such a way good behavior is encouraged or enforced. But the reality is, unless there are men at the end of every societal construct willing to enforce what is socially acceptable behavior, the laws won't matter. The laws won't matter and you will have chaos. You will have suffering, hunger, disease, death, all kinds of problems. This is an investment of sorts. Humans have figured out that if men are willing to threaten and enforce good behavior through stigma or violence, the end result is less violence, less suffering. But there have to be those men at the top of the pyramid willing to do it. When you live amongst people who have different moral inclinations than what the law suggests, the more stigma and violence men have to be willing to project. It's not enough for them to persuade and conjole their like-minded peers with minor enforcement. They have to double down, often putting themselves in harm's way for the good of the community. They must project stigma and the threat of violence so that the rest of the society can benefit from the order from the lack of chaos they provide. So remember, the law doesn't really matter. What matters is which group of men are willing to project stigma and the threat of violence most effectively. In Great Britain and a growing number of European countries, that group of men are often Muslims. They project stigma and the threat of violence more effectively than the native British men. And so the law is changing. Forget the words, forget the paper. This is why thousands of Muslims can freely shut down the streets of London or any other city in England with impunity, without fear of being charged for a single crime. If this group continues to thrive, in time, the law, those paper, and those words will reflect what they believe. In the United States, young blacks routinely loot and steal from businesses with zero fear of being arrested or jailed. 
Why is this? Because they project violence more effectively than the disparate group tasked with enforcing the law. That unenviable group of people we call the police. If the police are unable to project stigma and the threat of violence effectively, some other group will rise to the top and take their place. In many cities around the United States, that's young black men who are certainly capable of projecting violence without guilt or embarrassment. This is why police force with women is such an insidious, destructive component of modern society. Women are incapable of projecting enough threats of violence to matter. Sure, they may have a gun in their holster with a few bullets, but without a gun drawn and pointed at every possible suspect, they could easily be overpowered by nearly any man on the planet. Even multiple female police officers will likely be overpowered by a single male. And because they're women, they don't naturally project violence. And they shouldn't. We wouldn't want to live in a world where women project violence. Men are strong and occasionally scary, as they should be. A nation where groups of men aren't feared will just be replaced by another group of men who are feared. And chances are good you won't like what those men believe. If a police force decimated by weakness paves the way for chaos and suffering, it's not hard to imagine what a similarly affected military will do to a country. It's much worse. Much, much worse. Our military is certainly still capable of projecting fear and violence because the arcade games still work. They put their quarters in, wiggle the joystick, press a button, and blammo! Body parts fly. New high score! But eventually, sooner than later, we'll run out of quarters. And when the screens go blank and the buttons don't work anymore, we'll find ourselves unable to project stigma or violence on the world stage. Because of the feminist infiltration into our military, we're already so repulsed by violence, we can't even defend our nation's borders from attack. If the illegals had guns, maybe the video game bombs would rain down upon them. But this is the chink in the armor of the dragon a feminist army that feels sorry for our attackers. They are incapable of projecting violence when it matters most. So millions upon millions of men waltz into our country, eager to scarf down any and all resources our feminized police and armies and political systems will hand over in sympathy. Here's the thing most people don't realize. Those men coming into our country are capable of projecting violence. The Europeans who founded this country... The whites, if you will, tend to abhor violence. They avoid it at all co costs. Other people groups don't. They have very little instinct to avoid violence. White people believe all other people groups are just like them. Other people groups aren't so stupid. They recognize white people's weakness and are prepared to exploit it, prepared to project violence and stigma upon whomever they can, wherever they can. And just like I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, the law will follow. The law will become what the group of men most effectively projecting violence and stigma believe it should be. Right now, Christians all over the world are oppressed. The most oppressed religious group on the planet, if I recall correctly. Why is that? Because there are no Christian men willing to project the fear of violence or the shame of stigma. I hate that this is true. I, w I wish it weren't like this. 
I've lived my life peacefully. I've sought to make friends with enemies. Unfortunately, we're very late in the story of America. Almost 250 years in, the expiration date of nearly every great empire. We are in the rob the treasury and the outsiders taking over stage of the game. It's nearly the end. A couple hundred more days, I'm guessing. The nation, if not the world, is about to become less orderly and more chaotic. In nation after nation, what the law says it is and what people believe it is are diverging. This will cause instability, particularly as ascendant groups of males fight for supremacy. I'll say it once more. If politics is downstream from culture, culture is downstream from what groups of males are willing to enforce through fear of violence or the shame of stigma. The voting booth doesn't really matter. Even the law doesn't really matter. It all trickles down from something else, something scary, something necessary. If there are things you believe are good or beautiful or true, I can guarantee you will not get them. Your family will not enjoy them if someone like you, if enough men like you aren't willing to rise above other groups of men who believe differently. And that, my friends, is my incredible opinion. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. Hello, friends. Forrest Moretti here. Years ago, when I first realized we were being lied to about many things, most notably vaccines, I started making videos on Facebook and YouTube calling out how we were being harmed. My incredible opinion, they were called. You might remember seeing some of them because they were shared far and wide with millions of views. Facebook and YouTube didn't think very highly of them, and most of them have been removed from the internet at this point. Until now. All the My Incredible Opinion episodes, both seasons of them, almost 200 videos, are available for premium members on my website, forestmoretti.com. This includes the polio videos everyone seemed to love, the organic vaccine video, and the Brady Bunch measles episode people are always asking me about. So if you've been wanting to see them again, they're all easy to be found on my website at forestmoretti.com. And that is my incredible opinion. In the late 1800s, a new disease arrived in North America that claimed the lives of children everywhere. After trial and error, a vaccine was developed that could help, but the shot was dangerous and many parents refused it. In 1932, a new ingredient was added, an ingredient never before tried on humans. Throughout the country, children began to receive it, and within a year, a new mental disorder, unknown to anyone, began to appear. It affected toddlers, mostly boys. Children lost the ability to speak and would take little interest in any other humans, even their parents. The autism vaccine is the story of two of these children and why modern medicine's attempts to explain what happened have come up short. The autism vaccine, the story of modern medicine's greatest tragedy. Available on forestmoretti.com and Amazon. Years ago, when I used to make videos on Facebook and YouTube about the world gone mad, I had a phrase I used to tell all the people who hated me. You remember what it was? 
Good luck with your vaccines. Remember that? It was like a verbal middle finger to everyone who hated me for insisting I was crazy to believe not only were vaccines unnecessary, but they were the most harmful medical procedure ever introduced into the human population. I sold stickers, t-shirts, hats, and hoodies with that phrase and logo, the syringe with the fingers crossed beside it. Even though people always ask me for them, I stopped selling them because I felt so horrible about the COVID shot and how many people got duped by those in charge to get it. Well, it's a few years later, and I've actually renewed my hatred for those people still pushing this demon juice on the world's population. So I'm selling shirts and hoodies again. Good luck with your vaccines. Available now in my store at ForrestMoretti.com. Polio, the scourge of the 20th century. One of the most nightmarish diseases ever to strike the planet. Killing some, crippling others. Its most frequent victim, children. Its defeat through vaccines, considered the most important scientific achievement in human history. What if the story you learned about polio was wrong? What if the story of polio was something much different than you were taught? What if all the iron lungs and all the crippled children weren't simply the result of a virus gone wrong, but something much more nefarious, something man-made? For the first time ever, the Moth and the Iron Lung reveals the incredible story of how polio came to be, an unlikely sequence of events so profoundly disturbing, you'll question everything you were ever told. Get The Moth and the Iron Lung now on Amazon or ForrestMoretti.com. More doom porn than you can shake a broomstick at. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. <laughs> I love this track. I said it last week, but this bumper music is so fun. The, the, I said it last week. The podcasts don't have fun. You got to have the bumper music to have fun, to pick you up, get you ready to go for the next segment. So, uh, I, I love, you know, the two, three hours, that's a long time, but you, you need some bumper music here and there to, to kind of pump you up. So, um, anyway, this is the Forest Ready Show. I am your host by the same name. I apologize for the boring show title. It was my family's idea. I had several other creative ideas, such as Wokezilla or Mad World, and they, they denied me. It was a democratic election. Um... And they were evidently ballot stuffing because I lost seven to one. And uh, so the Forrest Moretti show it is. You can watch this on ForrestMoretti.com, my website, streaming live. Although you won't see a video of my face, you will see an avatar of a picture of me sitting in my truck at the marina where I write all my books because I'm a, a, a author, uh, a struggling author. So I, my headshot was taken by myself as I sat in my truck writing books. I don't have a nice, fancy studio office with a thousand books behind me like everyone else seems to have. I have a truck. It's a 92 Ford F-150. It's gold, and it's a piece of junk. Um, I have had two people put Post-it notes on my windshield saying they would buy it if, if I would sell it to them. 
But um, I don't think it's because it's nice. I think it's because it's so junky. They feel like they could use it to take stuff to the dump and not worry about it getting scratched because that definitely looks like what kind of truck it is. So if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast or Spotify Podcast, congratulations. They haven't canceled me yet. I'm sure that'll happen soon enough. Um, but uh, you can watch it. You can listen to it on Twitter Spaces. And uh, the audio will suck there. It's it's a horrible audio feed for music. I think it's tuned um, for uh, voices only. And I had to do a bunch of trickery to be able to pump music into Twitter spaces. But um, nevertheless, um, as I mentioned, today's guest, I'm sure you're all dying to hear from him. His name is Woe. He's like The Edge. But instead of guitar, he plays, I, I don't know. What do you play, Woe? Do you play some other instrument? Um, what do you play? Any... Uh, a long time ago, I played Barry Sachs. Barry Sachs. All lost... right, my yeah. man. If you guys don't know what the baritone saxophone is, it's this huge thing, and you have to hold it to the side, right? You can't hold it like here, like Kenny G style in the center. You kind of have to hold it to the side. And, and it was sort of part of the low brass. You know, you're basically a woodwind, but you're so cool as the baritone saxophone. You're basically considered low brass at the marching band. And low brass is kind of, you know, they're the rebels of the group. I don't know if you had that sort of experience in high school. But welcome to the show. Woe is here. I can't wait to talk to him. We had one quick phone call to kind of go over what we might talk about. And um, woe is here. Woe is me. Um, you know, this this week, um, we were reading through in, in church, my, my family meets at home, and we we just happened, I, I'm this this sounds, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna get superstitious here because I think superstition is horrible, but we just happened to be reading through Revelation eight, okay? You know, we go through a chapter every week and you know we we've been through a lot of places in the Bible. And guess what happened on Sunday? We bust out Revelation 8, and guess what it says? It it says, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. And um, I'm assuming that has something to do with your name. Um, care to comment? That is correct. Uh, Revelation 8, 13 happened, and it's, it's three woes. It's the three woes. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. And that just happens to be exactly the character limit for a Twitter bio. <laughs> so that was... For a few accounts ago, that was my username, so that would show up anytime I posted. And uh, I love it. Bands. That's why I'm, I'm tw- treble woe today. It's the three woes, but yeah, I love I, it. I go by woe. It, it has that, a little bit that, of dystopia to it that 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 Revelation is famous for. You know, it, it in one sentence it communicates it perfectly. And there's actually another guy, a, a friend of mine who has a, a wonderful substack called Contemplations from the Tree of Woe. Don't know if you've read it, but he's another one of my favorite people on the planet. I actually get to go meet him in, in meat space, as we call it, and actually see him and split a pizza with him occasionally. And he's my other woe. I have two woes in my life, and um, th- I, I couldn't be happier to have you on. Why don't you tell us... Who are you? What does the internet know you as? Because I have sort of third-person Twitter omniscient, which is very crappy, and and I have a very stilted view of who you are. Who do you sort of project yourself to be 
um, on the internet. Why are you here? What What are you talking about? We, we could talk about you know your doxing and that stuff in a second, but in general, what kinds of stuff do you talk about on Twitter? What kinds of things do you sort of project? When I first joined Twitter publicly, it was about 2017, and I was mostly talking about a lot of the things that were in your monologue. That was that was excellent. Thank you for that. I uh, I used to talk about politics, and I didn't really talk about religion at all. I didn't really think much about religion, you know, six, seven years ago. Like, I, I was Christian, but I didn't see the connection or the intersection between my faith, which was at the time sort of in the background, mm -hmm. and all the things that were happening in you know, 2016, 2017. As I started engaging on Twitter with others, I within about a year, I began to come to the conclusions that were in your monologue that, you know, there's not a political solution to these problems. And simultaneously, what I was seeing was that there were many non-Christian men, men that I, I call pagans, not derisively, mm -hmm. simply pagan versus Christians. I, I think non-believers sort of begging the question. So men who are not Christians, who aren't have no faith whatsoever, were looking at the state of the world as I was looking at it, and they were seeing that there were spiritual problems. They were concluding on their own, there must be ontological evil, there must be a Satan of some sort, mm -hmm. because the things that were happening in the world were so evil that they couldn't be explained simply by men misbehaving. And I agreed with that completely. And I realized, hey, wait a minute, I know about this. <laughs> like, I, I actually understand the spiritual intersection. So I pivoted to not really talking about politics anymore in the 2017, 2018 timeframe. And since then, I, I rebranded then as eschatology, you know, eschatology, G-U-Y, just basically talking about religion as it intersected with the state of the world, because I realized Christians should be participants in the political discussion to lead the way to say, hey, there is actually a good and evil, and we can show you what that means. And it should be guiding our political activity, because there's not really a difference when you're talking about human action. That's right. Now, you used to be eschatolic guy. I for, that's yeah. That was your handle. I forgot about that. I think that's yeah. actually when I initially followed you. And um, and yeah. I suppose somewhere along the way you changed. Um, yeah, I... I remember I'm, uh, the, the police had had a song, uh, you know, that said there is no political solution. And I always wondered what that meant. And if you just listen to my monologue, you might assume that what I'm implying is that violence is the solution. And that is not the solution. That has nothing to do with the solution. This, in my opinion, I, I'm curious what you have to say about this. Well, my opinion is there is only a spiritual solution and the, the political may come through a trickle-down effect. But what you said you realized, and this is what Joe Rogan evidently has sort of started saying, just mentioning the world is Jesus yesterday or the day before. Um, I'm not sure if you heard that. But um, it, it feels like there are people who are coming to the realization that um, the ballot box is not going to solve our problems. And in fact, there is no political solution um, that politics will come out of a spiritual solution. I, am I am I too far off in thinking that? Do you sense that's where people are starting to go? I think that's absolutely the case. I think it's been it's been remarkable to see so many guys like Rogan, who's clearly not a Christian, but even that's exactly the sort of guy I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Guys guys like him, I mean, obviously not as famous, but we're seeing that like 
he, he basically said like, Jesus is the only way out of this. And <laughs> when incredible, when I want to, when I want to get in front of those sort of conversations, it is not as some people think to say, Oh, well, that just means we check out of the world and let it burn. Cause we're going to pray on a mountain and, and wait for God. Right. And to, to your point, to say that there's not a political solution, as you said, like the, the only thing that maintains society is stigma and violence. That's absolutely true by whatever method it comes about, whether it's in a village or it's an entire nation state. Mm. It's not a call to violence to say that violence is one possible way to address this. It's a call for peace. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the reason that a cop will get out of his vehicle and put his hand on Neil Brandish, his firearm, is to indicate, I don't know what the intentions are of the person I just pulled over, but violence is an option here. It's not his choice, but the other guy gets a vote. That's actually in Romans. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Yeah. But God acknowledges it doesn't necessarily depend on us to live peaceably, but we still are obligated to live. So to say there's no political solution isn't advocating violence. And it's not saying we're just going to pop smoke and, and forget about the world. It's saying we want to obey God and we want to be peaceful, but if others are going to use violence, we're going to protect ourselves. We're going to defend what is ours because God gave it to us. Yeah. It begins with your life. The reason that everyone has a right to self-defense is that it's yours. It's not, it's from God. Um, I, I'm interested in that because there is a, a sort of a soft pacifism that seems to pervade Christianity now. And perhaps it's just a part of the, um, the, the modern feminized Christianity. Per perhaps it's more pervasive than that. But in general, there is a, a sense that somehow pacifism is a noble, more honorable option uh, when violence is presented to you. I have this saying, uh, you know, here I am quoting myself like Michael Scott, um, peace takes two, war only one. And it doesn't matter how much you want peace, war can be had very easily. It only takes one party for war to happen. It only takes one party for violence, for assault, for burglary, any of those things. It doesn't matter what you want. It, it can come upon you. And the reality is if you don't address what's happening, you are essentially deferring the violence to someone else. I, I say pacifism is deferred violence. You're essentially saying, not my problem, someone else's problem. You're doing nothing for the world but passing the buck onto the next guy who may be weaker than you, who may be less determined than you. But where do you think this sort of soft pacifism comes from? Is it just part of the sort of feminized Christianity or is it, is it something more specific? It is definitely part and parcel with the feminization of Christianity. I think as you were, as I was listening to your monologue, I was picturing how many pastors and pulpits today are obviously incapable of violence. Mm. You look at a man and you think this is, this guy is too weak to protect himself or anyone. Now, never mind winning a fight, but just not <laughs> clearly not even willing to fight back. And, you know, like if you lose, okay, but to, to be unwilling to even try is an abdication of your duty. I was thinking, I was reading just earlier this week, the story of David and Samson. And when the Philistines came, 
David went to Saul and said, let me take this guy out. And Saul basically laughed at him and said, you're a kid. And he said, I'm a, I have guarded my father's flocks. I have killed bears and lions <laughs> with my bare hands. I can take this guy. Right. Well, that is a shepherd. And pastor means shepherd. And I think today we have, we've just bred a, a seminary system in, in a culture that expects men to be just gutless. When, if you think of them as shepherds who are supposed to protect the flock, that, you know, the, the proper shepherd, it sometimes involves violence. Now, it's not to say that, you know, pastors are, are need to be the biggest guy or the meanest guy or anything like that's That's not their job. But for Christianity is is antithetical to, to pacifism. It's mm. I, I think pacifism is fundamentally evil mm. because it's it's abdicating the duty that God gives each of us, as you said, to to protect what we have a duty to protect. You know, if if I defend my body or if I defend my house or family or neighbor, I'm not just doing it because I'm mad mm. or because I want to hurt someone. God has put me in this place, and I have a duty to others because they're around. You know, that's the the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was just the guy in front of him. They weren't related. They weren't even the same race, but he was right in front of him. And this Good Samaritan took care of him mm -hmm. because he was right there. Neighbor is, is physical proximity. If there's someone around you and they need help, our duty as Christians and our, our basic duty as human beings is to help them. And that also includes defending them when they can't defend themselves. You know, it's part of the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not murder properly understood in the, in the terms of, you know, Matthew 6, when you're looking at the, that's the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, it's, it's not enough just not to kill someone. You have to not hate them. And to go even further, you shouldn't, you should do whatever it takes to preserve their body, to basically go as far in the opposite direction from killing them as possible. That's actually keeping the fifth commandment. Mm. Yeah. I, I look at pastors and, and, you know, there's this term, the physiognomy, of people. And, you know, we're soft, you know, we're overweight. We don't, we don't, we don't live hard lives anymore like they used to. And, and that's, you know, that's technology and modernity's fault. But there's something beyond that, that, that just says to me, you cannot depend on me if things go poorly. I am not the one you're going to go to if the, if the boat is sinking if the car won't start, if the zombies come knocking at the door, you know, I'm not the guy who you're going to depend on. And and pastors need to be that person. I, I really think they do. You know, I think this is why there is a popularity with John MacArthur, Douglas Wilson, and people like this. Even though they're they're up in age and they're not probably in the best health, they at least project a semblance of the ability to create fear of violence or stigma, D despite the fact that they're in their 60s or 70s, 80s perhaps with John MacArthur. I'm not sure how old he is, but it just goes to show you how few and far between uh, a, a manly pastor is. I mean, look at a picture of like Charles Spurgeon or, or I, I don't know if there's pictures of Jonathan Edwards, but you know, just think about these people and their sermons. I mean, these guys would put the fear of God in their congregation and, and you know, who care, theologically, whether you agree with them or not, it doesn't matter. The fact is they were projecting this sort of fear of violence, be, albeit from God himself, definitely the fear of stigma from within the church congregation, but they did it well. And I think that's why you see 
a few pastors sort of bubbling up to the top because they bring that heat that people need, that people want. I agree. And it's not performative. And, you know, like, I'm not a big, strong guy. I'm not, I'm not a fighter, but that doesn't mean I don't have the willingness to do what is necessary to the best of my ability. Like I said, I, and I've, I've said this in a, we did an episode last fall on kind of the state of the things in the world. And I said that men have a duty to, to be prepared for situations that are, you know, kind of black swan events to, you know, like it's, it's insurance. Like you were talking about, you know, if your car breaks down, like, can you change a tire? Mm -hmm. You know, there are certain things that don't, don't usually happen, but if they do happen, do you have a plan? And mm -hmm. maybe it fails, but if you're the guy who's not even, if the only thing you know how to do is, you know, use the AAA app on your phone, you're not going to be the person people can count on. And it's come about in our culture that that's just kind of expected. Like everyone's so specialized you're like, okay, well, he's the expert on theology. And so I can't count him on for, any, for anything else. And maybe that's the case. But what happens and what's happening in the world is that when guys like Joe Rogan start looking at the church, say, hey, I think maybe Jesus is the answer to this stuff. Then they look in the pulpits and they see girls. They see girls with short hair yeah. of both sexes. And they and they think, well, if this is, if this is Christianity, I'm not interested because... You know, which is unfortunate because God describes himself as a man of war. You know, the, the the depiction in Revelation of Jesus in heaven is as masculine as it gets. It talks about bronze and he's just, he sounds, he sounds like the epitome of the man yeah. because he is. We are made in his image and the masculine image is, is a real thing. It's not, a, it's not performative. It's, it's, it's God. And we're, we're a type of that and we should live up to it as best we can. Yeah, I think um, not to get into retail politics, as I, I call it, because it's kind of boring, but that's what Trump was. People try and, you know, talk about the Trump phenomenon and understand Trump. And you can talk about this or that ideology, and it's meaningless. He projected strength. He projected the fear of violence and stigma as feebly as it may be. But that's what people sense from him. And they flock to him because politics is even worse than the pulpit, I would argue, in some denominations or, or congregations at least, there, there is at least a, a semblance of masculinity coming from some churches, be it they, they've sort of continued to bar women from, uh, you know, preaching or, or what have you, but at least you see it occasionally. I think in politics, there are so few people that inspire I mean, you think about any movie like Braveheart or, or anything where a man inspired other men to risk death for a common cause. And I really, I, I just, I don't know if I could think of any man on the planet right now who would fill those shoes. And, and I think perhaps if someone like Joe Rogan comes around to Jesus and, and he starts preaching, people will flock they will flock to him because they sense he says what he feels. They sense that he's strong, that he is beholden to no one. And the and and then you add the, the Christian rapper on it. You know, it, it, it will happen whether you agree with his theology or not. You know, this is because people flock to these sorts of things. They they have a vacuum that they're wanting to fill of of masculine men who who, who love Jesus. 
there are things worth fighting for. I think that you're right. That's the one thing that people would recognize in Trump is he was willing to fight. Someone wants to come after him, he would push back, he would fight. And regardless of the morality or of how or when he did it, the willingness to say, I have something that is important enough, I'll fight for it, should certainly be the basis for the Christian faith. You know, the the depiction of faith is one of of armor and of of weaponry of yeah. of combat. You know, we're we're in a spiritual war. And that doesn't mean that there's never any physical violence. Like this, this this fundamentally isn't about physical violence. It's about the man's will to persevere in the face of opposition, which yeah. is you're saying at the beginning, like those are the kinds of guys you're looking for, men who are who have faced opposition, like I'm still here. That's I respect the the doctor who's like, I'm not wearing a mask. I did the same thing. I I wouldn't go anywhere that I had to wear a mask for a while. At first I wore a mask because initially it seemed sensible. Mm -hmm. But once I realized what was going on, I'm like, no, this is clearly theater. I'm done with it. And there will be consequences to that. There are consequences to fighting for something you believe in when when the machinery of stigma and violence is against you. And so in the absence of men who can discern what's true and then fight for it, civilization's lost. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think technology has enabled feeble men to succeed. It, it, just in the same way, it has enabled um, women to succeed in men typical masculine roles because of machinery or these sorts of things. I think uh, the same modern machinery and technology, if you will, have enabled feeble men um, to be lauded in a way they wouldn't have before. Um, you know, this may be through financial success. This may be through credentials, sort of the hallmark of the feminist achievement hierarchy are, are credentials and degrees and men have done well um, by getting credentials and degrees. And um, I, I think things are going to turn at some point the um, enabling of the matriarchal culture, as I call it, that we live in is going to turn when um, the technology isn't so um, self-serving anymore and men are forced to provide for their families in a way they haven't done in a long time. And, and at the same time, I believe women may be forced to nurture uh, humankind in a way they haven't done. Um, that can't come soon enough. Um, any thoughts on that? I agree. And I, I think it's important when people think about this not to picture a survival of the fittest situation where the weak just get picked off. Like that's some... Some people are weaker than others. Like I said, I'm not a big, strong guy. There are certainly guys who could completely take me apart. And the expectation morally is that they won't do that even though they're physically capable. Just as intellectually, I could humiliate pretty much anyone. I don't do it typically. Occasionally someone deserves it and I'm, I might unload, but my default is not to to abuse someone just because there's the ability to do so. Yeah, that's, that's actual the actual uh... strength. That, that's the battlefield of the internet that we live on today. That's uh, Twitter and the other uh, social media have essentially become the, the, battle, the modern battlefield, which in a way favors uh, women over men. And 
We're going to talk about that at the other side of this break. Stay tuned for more with Woe on The Forrest Moretti Show. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. In the past few years, I've written 16 books. Books like Moth and the Iron Lung, Crooked, Unvaccinated, Red Pill Gospel. I don't write books because I'm bored or want money. I write books when I've discovered something new and get really excited about it. Like with the moth in the iron lung, I made a connection no one seemed to have made. A coincidence so incredible that book just exploded out of my brain. Here's what Catherine Austin Fitz of the Solari Report says. Every time I think I'm no longer naive, I discover once again how little I really know. This happens every time I read one of Forrest Moretti's books. It's like taking a can opener to the mind. Wow, I hope you'll consider one of my books if you haven't read them yet. I promise they'll give you a clearer understanding of the world around us than you ever thought possible. Moth, Tribal Instinct, Red Pill Gospel, they're all available on Amazon and my website at forestmoretti.com. Thomas Finch, a rebellious doctor, subject of a global manhunt, wanted for the murder of one of the most beloved figures in public health. When a miraculous healing technology is unveiled, the doctor is promised a deal he can't refuse. They'll save his daughter's life if he'll turn himself in. The doctor, already suspicious of a worldwide vaccination program, begins to believe another, more nefarious plan is underway. His race to stop it, frustrated by a heart condition he fears could kill him at any moment. Best-selling author Forrest Moretti has created a stunning thriller that pits the lone doctor, hated by many for his unorthodox views, against the global powers that seek to control. Super Spreader is a wild ride from page one all the way to the thrilling end. Why are more parents having unvaccinated children? Hey folks, Forrest Moretti here. When I first heard people weren't vaccinating their children, I was shocked. I thought vaccines were the most incredible medical invention of all time. A miracle of science and technology that saved the lives of untold millions. I couldn't believe seemingly intelligent, educated parents were purposefully skipping vaccines for their children. And not just some of the shots, all of them. Fast forward a few years later and I wrote a short book about the most amazing things I learned as I went from hardcore vaccine enthusiast to the board certified anti-vaxxer I am today anti every single vaccine ever made. This book is called Unvaccinated and it's short, easy to share, and is a great way to introduce your friends and family to the concept of natural immunity and how our bodies are not only well-equipped to handle infection, but how they thrive on it as well. Unvaccinated on Amazon or forestmoretti.com. Something strange is happening to our faces. Have you noticed? They're becoming more crooked. Eyes don't line up with each other. Smiles are tilted. If you look at old photographs, you'll almost never see someone look like this. Nowadays, it's everywhere. Lazy eyes, crooked smiles. What started as a simple search to understand why this is happening turned into a two-year quest that uncovered hidden links between our crooked faces and some of the most puzzling diseases of our time. From autism to Alzheimer's, from chronic fatigue to Crohn's disease, 
Crooked connects the dots from the rise of metallic medicine in the 1800s to the explosion of neurological and autoimmune disorders so many suffer from today. Crooked, man-made disease explained. Get the book today in paperback, digital, and audiobook on Amazon or ForrestMoretti.com. With answers to questions you'll be asking in three years. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to The Forrest Moretti Show. I am your host, Forrest Moretti. I'm here with our superstar guest. Woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. Um, the number is 910-807-7200. Text us a message or question if you have something you want to add to the conversation with. We're not going to let you call because you might ramble. And that drives everyone crazy, the guests who rambles. I ramble enough as it is. Um, well, I want to circle back to something we were just getting into. I kind of cut you off at the end because of these segments, these breaks. But... Um, there are the the battlefield of ideas is the internet has become that and in the past um, men fought on the battlefield and and in general women stayed away and we have a sort of interesting situation now where we the world thankfully hasn't sort of fallen to complete violence. There is some semblance of peace, despite all the conflict everywhere. But there is ideological warfare, spiritual warfare, and others going on every day on the internet. And um, women are playing a big part in that. They are taking place on the battlefield in a way that they have never been able to before. They can safely, from the comfort of their home or treadmill at the gym, they can... Um, add to the conversation. They can um, troll people. They can try and get people doxxed. They can do all sorts of horrid things uh, with no fear of violence, no fear of of gunfire or anything taking them out. And I'm not so sure this is a good thing. I, I'm not really so sure the, the lady folk um, need to be in the mud pit slinging mud with these the nastiness that's on Twitter. What do you what do you think about that? Where, where is this headed for women in the battlefield? I think the roots of that question are really about politics itself. I mean, when the amendment to give the franchise to females was under discussion, the majority of women in this country were opposed to it for precisely this reason. They did not want to participate in politics. They saw that it was not a feminine domain, that it was a domain that did involve fighting and controversy and things for which they're not constitutionally equipped, regardless of their intellectual capacity to you know, suss out issues. It has nothing to do with whether girls are smart enough to engage in politics. Clearly, we see that there are plenty who have the aptitude to like get certain things right but temperamentally it's not a feminine domain and so i think i don't think it's a twitter question i think it's a social media question i think it's a question of if men were actually doing our jobs in maintaining things politically 
going back, you know, 150 years, we wouldn't be where we are today. I think that a lot of these discussions when they quickly devolve into finger pointing because like, well, you know, it's, it's Twitter. And so we need to, we, social media is toxic, you know, anonymity is making people mean. I don't think that's the issue. Hmm. And I don't think it's, it's girls are either too hysterical or they, you know, the, you, you'd mentioned they don't face the sort of possible threat of violence that is in the real world. I would hope that that wouldn't be necessary to keep anyone in line, but it's certainly, it's a realistic possibility. I think it's much more basically that it's not their domain. The thing that girls are the best at is maintaining a household in cent a century or so of feminism. Scandal. Yeah. I'm just kidding. That's, we, yeah. No, we, we did we did two episodes on Stone Choir specifically dealing with the scriptural ontological nature of women and also the, the sort of history of feminism itself to tease out that to say that, you know, it sounds incredibly offensive today and I'm sure it angers some people listening, but it's actually respectful to say, look, here's what you're good at and here's what we as men are failing to do. You know, every time someone like Ann Coulter steps up to be a combatant in politics, it means that 100 men have failed to be there in that spot that she is filling. And so when I see her, I don't think, oh, wow, what a strong female model. I think, look how bad men have become that we need her to fight our battles for us. It's shameful to men that women have to engage. And I don't necessarily fault them for doing so, but I want to see us create a world where they realize there's no point that like they can leave that alone because it's being taken care of. Frankly, most men aren't suited to it either. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've felt the same way. Um, you know, I've, I've seen very smart, very astute women make insightful commentary on Twitter uh, that's usually that's about the only social media platform I'm on. I'm sure they're doing it elsewhere. But my instincts, I, I sort of cringe in a way, it, despite maybe the accuracy or the astuteness of their observation. I still cringe because I know that the Internet is likely to become um, their chief source, their chief peer group. And. and you know, women are naturally consensus builders. This is when you don't have physical, the physical ability to defend yourself, you're naturally better at building consensus. And this is um, where the internet, social media in particular, is finely tuned to steer uh, women in a way they may not have otherwise gone. It, it becomes a father figure to them in a way they're not willing to admit. And I, I, I can't help but to feel like I agree with what you said in that there is every time a, a, a feminist or a, a woman uses her social media clout to project power, it's it is humiliating to men. Uh, I see some fairly uh, popular trad wife type women on Twitter, and I just, I know their husbands are dying inside. Their husbands want to lead. Their husbands want to fix things for them. But the women are out there, you know, gaining all kinds of clout and followers, saying their opinion, writing books, leading conferences, and their husbands are just dying inside. I, I, I feel bad for them. 
And I, I don't know. Have you noticed anything like that? I certainly see the the female exemplars of that. I I wish you're right about the husbands, but honestly, I don't think you're right. I think that the husbands are super proud of their girl boss <laughs> wife. Interesting. I I because because you can't pick on a girl on the internet. You can't when see that what the thing that happens is that girls will enter into this domain that is naturally combative. When you're dealing with the domain of ideas, things are right or wrong, things are going to get people hurt, it's necessary to shout some things down and to say, no, actually, you're an idiot. You have no business talking about this. And that's fine politically. Like Men are perfectly comfortable saying that to each other. You can't say it to a girl. And so I think all the husbands at home love having their wives out there as an avatar making all these statements because it's not socially acceptable to say, well, this... You can't say to a girl what you would say to a man about them saying exactly the same things. So the men get to advocate their their feminist positions without putting any skin in the game. Because if they went out there and said those things, they get their butts kicked. And they know that. And so I think they're grateful because it allows them to avoid danger. It allows them to avoid ever doing anything controversial that someone might disagree with. And can white knight the second that their girl gets bossed around or, or you know bullied and then they can both victim together i think it's i think it's a perfect coupling of it's basically lesbianism where one of them happens to have xy chromosomes that's interesting i hadn't thought of that i i'll have to consider it i think you're unfortunately you're probably right i don't know how often but i i'm sure uh maybe things are worse than i thought <laughs> Maybe there are those men out there who, who actually enjoy um, not having to wear the pants. Maybe we've fallen that far. You know, I, I think of um, stigma. Uh, you know, we talked in the monologue about stigma. And, and I want to I talk about this video. Uh, are you familiar with the, the white girls dancing at the gas station parking lot video? Do you, do you know what I'm talking yep. about? Yeah, I followed that. Yeah, so... Yes. Um, if for those of you at home, it was a video of a bunch of, I would say probably college age girls, I would imagine sororities, sisters or something, uh, dancing in, in the parking lot of a gas station. And, um, on the surface, uh, they look to be having fun. There certainly seems like innocent fun in a way. And, um, I, I saw um, there's a gal named Allie Beth. I think it's Stucky or Stuky. And I don't know how you pronounce her name. I, I've um, she's I think super popular. You know, like probably is on one of these bigger media companies like um, Blaze or um, uh, Ben Shapiro's thing. Anyway, um, she weighed in on it uh, on this video, and and I'm going to read her tweet. She said. Uh, uh, the the tweet, uh, the original tweet was the the video of the the girls dancing, and I'm going to describe how they were dancing because that's really important. I'm not going to say it yet, but it says, "Why don't men want Western women?" And then it showed the video, uh, you know, essentially to say this is why men don't want Western women. And and her comment was, "This of all the reasons girls dancing with backpacks on is the reason men don't want women in the West." Okay, then. 
Um, then she said, she followed it up and said, I find this post to be a little bit of a cope. Of course, you're not obligated to be attracted to any of these women. You can even find this silly or repulsive, but this is how sorority girls act together. And I'm going to shock you most. Uh, and then she goes on. So uh, I'm uh, bef before we get into the content of the dancing, what do you think of that take? Um, I've got my own opinion, but I, I, I'm just curious if you, you have some opinion on it. I think that she is hanging out the left side of the Overton window and has no idea where it began. Mm -hmm. And that was the case with pretty much everyone defending it. They were looking at something that would have been illegal to put on TV 40 years ago and think, oh, this is fine. This is what girls do, which was the point of the original tweet. This is the problem. This is what girls do. And so everyone responding, well, of course, this is just normal behavior. Like, it's normal, unrestrained behavior. That doesn't mean it's proper behavior in a Christian, decent society. It's two separate questions. The fact that it's common doesn't justify it. Yeah, that that was actually sort of <clears throat> my take on it was, you know, she said, well, this is how sorority girls act together as if that's the moral compass for what is right or wrong is, well, they do this. And everyone in the sorority does it, implying that, well, that means it's okay. Because, hey, I don't feel embarrassment about this, so I suppose I shouldn't be embarrassed about it because I don't feel it. And the reality is, if I may <clears throat> sort of tread into you know treacherous water here, um, these girls were dancing in, in a sort of a trashy way that is culturally appropriated, as far as I can tell, from a, a very a sort of urban black culture dance. And I guess this is okay in that, you know, I, I think Drake or, you know, some of these hip-hop artists are probably the most popular artists on the planet, and everybody listens to them, which means everybody dances in the way that's appropriate for those songs. But it feels wrong when you see it. It it feels wrong. It instinctively feels wrong. This is not proper. This is not beautiful. This is not modest. This is um, dancing in a way that's sexually suggestive. It's, you know, pursing your lips, trying to make yourself appear physically in some way that you're not. I mean, this is a far cry from the waltzes and the balls and the sort of, um, I, I hesitate to say upper crust because that sounds so snooty, but I don't know what else to say. It just doesn't feel very cultured. It feels like racing to the bottom of the barrel to appeal to your more primitive um, base um, desire. And, and it's just the fact that they're completely unashamed of doing it and even revel in it, knowing there's video cameras on them, knowing it's going to go onto Twitter or uh, TikTok or wh wherever. The fact that there is not an ounce of stigma associated with gyrating um, in a public space like this, I think that lack of stigma is almost as telling as anything else. I think one of the things that bothered me the most about the scene was all the claims, oh, these are sorority girls. Now, 
I'm an old guy, but I can tell the difference between like a 13 and 14 year old girl and an 18, 19, 20 year old girl. A bunch of those girls were barely freshmen in high school. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you they were not all college age. Yeah, they were mostly in the back, but they were all participating. Like, they're all there together. I don't know what, why, I have no idea what the gathering was, but a lot of those girls were profoundly underage, which wouldn't matter if it were just, you know, clapping or whatever. But as you said, like, the nature of the dance was very sexual. Yeah. And the problem is that no one really even recognizes that. Like it was the first time that I saw that those particular moves was over 30 years ago in a two live crew video. Oh, right. I used to be able to tune into that from, I, I live somewhere where I could get much music from uh, Canada on my UHF TV and I could tune in at night and see two live crew videos, which were completely obscene. I shouldn't have been looking at it. Yeah. I was a teenage boy. Like I wanted to see that. Yeah. And exactly the things that they were doing the first time I ever saw it was there. I didn't see it in high school. I didn't see it when, you know, around anyone my age who was my race, but I saw it in that video. And then it's percolated since then throughout the rest of culture. And you're absolutely right. It's they were dancing like African Americans. They were dancing in a vulgar, profane way. But again, like it would have been treated as public indecency 40 years ago. They would have been arrested. And everyone thinks that it's progress, that that's not the case anymore, which goes back to your monologue. Like, where's the shame for behaving in certain ways? And this is what's happened to our society. These things just happen bit by bit and bit. And no one will say, that's, that's disgusting. Don't do that. And so it goes a little bit further and a little bit further to the point that when everyone does, it's like, well, we can't all be guilty. We can't all be disgusting. Well, actually, you can. And mm -hmm. in fact, you are. And, and the, the other terrible defense I saw from some people was a bunch of the guys I follow on Twitter are proud Southerners. And I respect that. We, we talked when we were getting prepared that half of my family's from the South. I have no hostility towards the South, even though I was raised as a Yankee. But the defense from those guys was, well, that's Mardi Gras dance. And you just, you got, you don't understand Quit oppressing us, you Yankees. This is what we do down here, y'all. I'm like, well, if you act like jungle people, then it's disgusting and you should be ashamed. Yeah. And if like you, you have to have a sense of shame about that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't even fault them. They weren't doing anything that anyone has ever told them was wrong. That's right. And that's the problem. If no one ever tells you something like, I'm not mad at the girls and you know, like their boyfriends are ringing them whenever. So like, you know, they were safe. It's like, that's not the point. They shouldn't be doing something that is shameful and they shouldn't know that it's not shameful. Like it's, it was just, it was a sad scene. And then everyone had to trade barbs online. It was, it was aggravating like most things on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, you raise a really interesting point because when I was growing up, I assumed the girls were naturally chaste. I thought modesty was part and parcel of being a female. You know, this is, you know, I'm probably a, a little bit older than some of our listeners here, but it was uh, none of this. You never saw any of this, uh, the trashy behavior. And um, I'm realizing, I think we as a, a society are realizing that that behavior was actually learned. It was taught. It was, uh, I'm sorry, the chaste behavior, the modesty, all of these things were actually taught. 
and that it doesn't happen without work. It actually takes men enforcing stigma for this to work. And, and I think we're starting to see the results of society without men who are willing to enforce stigma. And in a way, um, young women are the canaries in the coal mine because a society without chaste women who demand excellence from men in order to get married or to have sex with them or whatever sorts of leverage they may feel they have, you have to have women willing to use that leverage to for men to achieve greatness. You know, this is why men go to war. This is why men make sacrifices. It's for the life that a chaste woman can provide through a family. And if women don't provide that incentive to men by refusing them unless they are excellent, unless they are noble and and have good manners and all these other sorts of things, society falls apart because there is no leverage anymore. There is nothing, there is no reward for any good behavior. It starts with men enforcing stigma and it goes straight into women refusing to be chased because that is the ultimate leverage they have in shaping men's behavior. And they're clearly not doing it now. I think that specifically within the realm of the two sexes, governing themselves as, as they're reaching sexual maturity. I don't think that men like society writ large enforcing stigma is going to work for, especially like teenage girls. They're entirely internally self-regulating, which mm. is why things like slut shaming are that, that, that term itself is today derisive, but that's important. You know, it wasn't that long ago that if a girl was loose, if she had a bad reputation, it was all the other girls. Because as long as the girls kept each other in line and said, well, this is outside the bounds of what we will tolerate in terms of stigma, of course, the guys want it. Guys naturally, you know, apart from Christianity, apart from what we know we should be doing, apart from wanting to, to build society and to behave, sexual availability has an appeal. And mm -hmm. so the more of this behavior, the more men, especially in that age cohort, you know, yeah, more of that, please. But it's the girls who can have to reinforce it. Now, the exception to men don't do this is that fathers, fathers are absent in regulating these things yeah. to govern who the, who their girls are friends with and, you know, what they participate in, that sort of thing. Like, if the father sets an expectation of modesty, that is what is enforced. But that's the top-down thing. And I think all the stigma, like it's it's not a fatherly stigma. It's you're not going to do that when you're my daughter and yeah. you're my daughter as long as I'm alive. But the stigma has to come from the girls, which is why the Overton window matters because these things, you know, what was in a true live crew video 30 years ago today is just normal TikTok behavior for 13-year-old girls. And as you said, like it took incrementalism to get there, but it was it was girls accepting that, okay, this is where the new boundaries are. So eventually there are no boundaries at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a real problem. I think social media has essentially become a force multiplier for bad behavior. I, I don't know if it's possible to be a force multiplier for good behavior. Um, that's something I want to talk about in the next segment is, is technology morally neutral or is it something that brings out the worst in people? Is it something that brings out the best in people? 
Um, there's certainly tons of heartwarming clips on on the internet of soldiers returning home from, you know, being abroad or or a dog rescued from ice-filled lake and these sorts of things. But it does seem to be a force multiplier for degeneracy in all kinds of dimensions. And I, I think... Um, I think there's a discussion to be had. You know, I joke at the beginning of the show about home of the Amish 2.0. It's a thing I've said, which is, you know, we need to go back in some way to, you know, to the Amish. And I say, we need to go back to 1989, you know, the greatest year ever. Um, it's sort of a time before the internet came about. But, um, you know, perhaps in the next segment, um, that's something we can talk about is, can we go back? Can we somehow rewind what's been lost and restore um, our nation? Can we restore the moral compass of humanity? Can we restore our denominations? Um, that's something I really want to get into with you soon, um, Whoa, is to talk about where is um, Christianity now in America? Um, can these denominations be restored? Can they be rewound um, to where they once were, uh, because we do have a lot of problems, and uh, I'm not positive that going back is an option. I think maybe somehow we may need to build something new, and um, we can certainly talk about that in the next segment. Um, we're coming up on a break here. Um, in the next segment, I skipped the object of my affection. I'm sorry, Woe. I, I hope you still have that handy. Because we're going to ask Wo what is the most important object um, in his life, or not it have to be important, but something if his house were on fire, something that he would grab in order uh, that his life might continue uninterrupted. For me, last week I told about mine. It was my dome sound machine. I can't sleep without that thing. It's a it's a horrible habit I've gotten into. But um, in the next segment, we're going to go over the, all those questions. Those deep topics I just talked to you about. And most importantly, we're going to ask Wo what his object of affection is. Stay tuned, y'all. We'll be right back after this timeout. The Forest Moretti Show, live. To all the pediatric vaccines doctors recommend? That's a question I used to hear all the time. All the books out there were huge, but I wanted something easy to understand, something that went through each vaccine one by one and explained the pros and cons. I compiled all this information into a book called Vax Baby, The Curious Parent's Guide to Pediatric Vaccines. But I also wanted to tell you it's available in video form, over 50 of them, for premium members of my website. The Vax Baby series covers every pediatric vaccine from birth through late teens, even those recommended while you're pregnant. Many other questions are covered. Should family members get vaccines before the baby arrives? Should I give my baby Tylenol before their shots? If you've been wanting a complete, truthful explanation for pediatric vaccines, VaxBaby is the way to go. VaxBaby on my website at forestmoretti.com. Hey, Ryeth. It's an old Welsh word you don't have in the English language. It means a feeling of homesickness for a home to which you cannot return. A grief for something not only lost, but something you can't even remember what it was. It's a fitting word right now. Nations feel lost, lives devoid of meaning. 
is this really the way we're supposed to live? The Tribal Instinct is a book that explains how Christians are called to live amongst their own, amongst people who speak like you, think like you, even look like you. It's not only a natural desire, but a biblical one as well. The Tribal Instinct, the sacred desire for people and place, will help you to understand why we often feel Horaith, that longing for a home we cannot return, and what we can do to recover what was lost. The Tribal Instinct, a book by Forrest Moretti, available in paperback, digital and audio versions. Today, many of the treasured institutions that made America such a great place to live are being destroyed. Riots fill the streets as cities burn. Churches sit empty. Public education is in shambles. Law and order are no longer respected and nothing appears safe from disruption. Are social justice, critical race theory, and equality the key to understanding our world's ills? Or could our insistence on equality in all things actually be the root of most every problem we face? Unequaled asks an important question. What if inequality was created by God on purpose? What if our rebellion against inequality is actually the root of all sin, the very thing that is breaking the natural order of God's creation right now? Unequaled is one of my most important books, and it's available on Amazon and ForrestMoretti.com now. As Christianity, the world's most popular religion, approaches its 2,000-year anniversary, more have begun to question mainstream dogma than ever before. Whether political corruption, scientific fraud, or medical tyranny, humans are waking up to the fact much of what they were promised to be true was instead deception. Lies meant to cloud the truth and give power to those who deceive them. Over the course of hundreds of years, man-made doctrines accumulated and warped the Christian faith so drastically many of its early believers would scarcely recognize it. For those unafraid to look, Red Pill Gospel peels back the layers of lies man added to the gospel and reveals the beautiful hope it portrays. Red Pill Gospel, Christianity Before It Was Ruined by Christians, a book from Forrest Moretti. Separating the haves from the have yachts. It's the Forrest Moretti Show, live. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this incredible conversation with Woe. Wisdom dripping from his fingertips, soon to be the Woe. Um, thank you guys for listening. Twitter Spaces is horrible. I hope some of you who are listening in Twitter spaces can jump over to Rumble. Go to my website at forcemready.com. It's in the bio of my Twitter profile. Um, Twitter spaces is designed for voice and pumping music through it doesn't work very good. And it also just drops a lot. So I apologize for that. Hope you guys are able to listen on Rumble or my website. Um, anyway, uh, as promised, um, Woe is here to talk about the object, oh, the object of, of his affection. affection. And, and I've got a little theme music here that hopefully will make it past the copyright sensors. The object of my affection. Woe, are you ready to answer this question? 
I am. All right. What is that object in your life that is important to you? Something that if your house were on fire, you would grab and take with you in order that life may go on. What is that thing? When you posed this question to me when we were setting this up, you had mentioned that one of the things you were looking for was what had some sort of sentimental value you know, that would re reveal something about me or about whomever you asked the question to, which makes it an excellent question. And I was thinking in terms of sentimentality, for me personally, what a terrible question that is because I am so fundamentally unsentimental. I One of the things that I have learned over and over and over again in my life is that whatever I have, I'm going to lose at some point. Oh, and so as a result, you know, and I, I'm getting, my answer is kind of going along why that isn't necessarily as terrible as it sounds. Um, the, the specific answer to your question is that when in the last couple of years I was at Apple, I was there from 20, 2000 through 2014. So I left in my 15th year. Oh my year. gosh. Wow, that must have been an incredible in the run. Last, yeah, it was it was a in, very interesting time in uh, my life and certainly in the life of the corporation. In the last couple of years, those, those rumors were beginning about the Apple Watch. And around the same time, I was starting to get interested in watches, in horology, you know, watchmaking in general. And I, I, I don't remember when I got the idea, but part of it at least was rebellion against the idea of a digital watch. And so I started learning about the you know the mechanisms and the history and really the beauty of of wristwatches and one of the interesting things about them is that wristwatches are actually in part a kind of a, a calvinist invention because 500 years ago right at the time that miniaturization was getting to the point that it was possible to make a a small watch it used to be the clocks were very large and some of them still are but it was five centuries ago that they were finally getting you know, the gears and the mainsprings and things to the point that it was possible to make a very small one that could be handheld. And what happened in Calvinist places like Switzerland, one of the things that they pushed was issuing any sort of jewelry, any sort of ostentatious behavior or display. And watches were an exception to that somehow. Hmm. So basically it became, you know, five centuries ago, it became kind of jewelry for men that was morally permissible in places where jewelry was forbidden. I didn't and know that. And so all, all of, yeah, and so all the engineering, creativity, all the artistry that had really had been kind of diverted away from creating art pieces was in some places, particularly Switzerland, was redirected into creating watches. And interestingly, one of the oldest watches on the planet was owned by Philip Melanchthon who was the the co-author of the Book of Concord, which is one of the basic books of, really, it's what defines the, the Lutheran uh, denomination. Interesting. So as I started getting into it, I, I, would, I just became interested in it. And as I was realizing my time was winding down at Apple, uh -huh. I did a bunch of research on different watches, <laughs> and I decided I was going to buy myself a gold watch since there's there are no more, you know, there's no more pensions. There's no, no tearful goodbyes when somebody leaves a company. And so I bought my own white gold watch and I, I, I spent a while researching and picked out a nice German, uh, very subtle watch that if you didn't know anything, just like, oh, it looks nice. If you look closely, like, wow, this is really nice. And if you know about it, you're like, holy 
cow. I've never seen one of those in person. And so I, I bought that kind of as a, a, a token of my time there and how that time itself was fleeting and ephemeral. And so the, the, the specific answer is I would grab that watch if, you know, my house were on fire, wow. but it's not at all sentimental because I look at it today. I'm like, I wish I'd spent that money on really anything else. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'll probably sell the watch at some point because I, I could use the money. I don't need the watch anymore. I don't need that sort of fancy jewelry. But it, it made me realize that, you know, to, to what I said earlier about not being sentimental, there's, there's nothing in my house that I would take that if I didn't have it, I would mourn. Mm. Um, and like you said, I, I learned a long time ago that whatever I have, I'm eventually going to lose. And that sounds incredibly black-pilled and it sounds very negative. And I'm not suggesting that it comes from a place of psychological well-being, <laughs> but... Nice. Having, having, having reached that conclusion... I can actually appreciate things far more as long as I have them, whatever it is. You know, it's like chicken tenders in my freezer or, you know, whatever thing I have, you like, it doesn't have to be fancy. Like I have it. I appreciate it. If it's gone, I'm going to be okay. Mm. And that's really the answer to the, the underlying question you had about, you know, something revealing about me, which is that having a long time ago realized whatever I have, I'm going to lose has given me the freedom to A, not be worried about things like being doxxed, and B, to actually trust God the way Scripture says we should. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's very easy for me to trust that God will take care of me tomorrow, that you know, if, if the electricity goes out and all my, my chicken tendies spoil, uh -huh. God is going to feed me tomorrow. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that God will take care of me. And so the things that I have, I appreciate. I don't buy anything anymore. I need to sell the crap I have. I just don't care about it. Yeah, I'm not sentimental about it because I know that God will take care of me. And so that's that's kind of my answer about you know the watch, mm -hmm. my uh, my time at Apple, and I trust in God. And I, I'm thankful to have learned that lesson a long time ago because it makes it easy just to to count on His promises. Things that some people have a hard time with, I I just don't. Mm. Well, I will send you an autographed copy of Red Pill Gospel signed by me, dedicated to you, and and then you'll have something um, willing to sacrifice your life to retrieve out of a burning house. I'm, I'm sure that would quickly um, take the place of the chicken tendies in the freezer, at least, if not the gold watch. But um, that was an excellent answer, an excellent story. Um, I love that story. Um, I... Apple is an interesting company to me. Um, I was actually at the, um, I have a lot of Apple stories, as I'm sure you do, but I'll never forget, um, I was at the Apple Developer Convention in, I, I believe it was 2005. And at that time, if, if any of you guys are kind of techies, you'll remember that um, um, Mac made its own processors or through Motorola. You know, they had some partnership with them. They tried to make clones for a while because there were gateways and Dells and all these successful PC clones. And Apple partnered with a couple of other companies for a while. That kind of fell through and they decided, let's stop doing that. And they went back to their own processors. And meanwhile, Intel was just killing it. You know, they were making these amazing, amazing processors. So all the visual effects guys, anybody that needed a really powerful computer was using Windows. And 
we go to the Apple Developer Conference, and Steve Jobs is up there giving a speech, and he pulls up a map, and he shows this picture, and he said, you know what we've been doing in this little building here? Did, did you happen to go to that conference? Would you have been there, 2005? And he yep, said... I was there. Okay. And, and he said... Um, Oh, he pulls up. He's got a Macintosh hooked up, you know, on the screen. He goes to the top left and you clicks on the little Apple icon and it says about this Mac. And, and, and you know what's coming up. Well, and it comes up and there it is. It says, you know, the, the, the Mac powered by Intel. And if you're the older guys will appreciate this. This just blew our minds. Everybody was there. It just blew our minds. It's one of those infamous Steve Jobs moments where it was set up perfectly. It was dropped perfectly. It was just a complete bombshell throughout the room that Apple had secretly been designing their OS, redesigning all their software to work with Intel chips. And I, I couldn't tell you how excited I was to see that. Do, do you, you remember that? You were there, I guess? I was there because I worked on that. I oh, was part of me. I, I the little was part Indian. Of the team. You so, had, you had the little Indian yep. trick you had to do. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so the entire time that I was at Apple, I had the the rare privilege of probably being one of the few people in tech his, history that every product I ever worked on shipped because <laughs> every product I worked on was Mac OS ten. Wow. I, I started working on public beta in two thousand. And I worked on through 10.10 .10 in 2014. Wow. And so I left as soon as that shipped. And my job at Apple was, initially I was just a, a QA guy. And I, pretty quickly, I was one of the youngest managers at Apple, managing the team responsible for third-party compatibility. And so that was the key part of the, the Intel transition because Rosetta was the technology that was used to translate PowerPC code into x86 code so that all the existing apps could work because that was the that was a crucial part of a of a transition it's not enough just to sell a computer with a new cpu because everything that everyone has is for the old stuff yeah. and so you need to recompile but that but there's that that transition period where all the customer software is still compiled for the old cpu in order to get it to the point that you could use it they had to come up with rosetta and so my team, I was I was one of the earliest people NDA'd on once they just once they gave the green light. So the Intel transition actually began around 2001. It had wow. been kind of a skunk works project. Wow. Um, just as just to basically keep it around. And if it was in the 2004, 2005 time frame that they decided to pull the trigger because PowerPC was clearly just never going to keep up with Intel. Yeah. And so what had been kind of on the back burner as soon as it was greenlit to say this is the strategy, I was one of the first people read in because my team was key to make sure that everything would work. Wow. And as you said, you know, it's like the Indian transition was a it was a big challenge. And so that that was the reason I was physically present on the day of the keynote. I was at a bunch of other uh, WWDCs, but I was you know, not a guest of honor, but like I was given the privilege of being allowed to actually be there on the day of the keynote because I was, my team was, did something really important That's for them. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, um, there's, I don't think there's ever, there probably never be again. There, there is nothing like some of those Steve Jobs keynotes 
Uh, I know he was a part of the team. Uh, he was a big part of the team. I know a lot of peop- other people played a part in making those just his- – they felt historic. As, as a kind of techie guy, they felt historic. If you've ever seen the clip of Steve Jobs um, unveiling the iPhone, he he is exploding. He is giddy. This is years and years of excitement that he's finally – finally able to unveil to the world. And in fact, um, I interviewed at Apple for a job. This is years ago. They had a senior visual designer position. I used to do a lot of design and I had designed some visual effects software and done some very fancy stuff. And I got an interview and, you know, they flew me out there and they gave me this office for the day. And, you know, I had to meet, you know, everybody came to my office to interview me, which is really interesting and stressful. And, and the guy said, Hey, um, you know, you got your first half of interviews, and if so-and-so comes at 1230 and asks you to go eat lunch in the cafeteria, then you made it through the first round, and you get to go to the second round. And um, so they came in and were asking me these questions, and they seemed to go well. And then uh, a young guy comes in and takes me to a room where, where they have an iMac and Photoshop on it, and he, you know, asked me design, to design, like some, speaking of watches, he asked me to design a stopwatch Um like a widget. This is back when desktop, you know, had all the widgets. And so anyway, I made it, went to lunch, got through the round, then started meeting with these like higher level people. And this guy comes in. Now, I, I mind you, I was told this was for the iPod. Okay. This is a design position for the iPod. And he comes in, puts his feet on the desk. Now you're going to probably be able to guess who this is. Whoa. I'm going to see if you can guess who this is. Cause I know who it is. I knew who it was. He came in, put his feet on the desk, reached into his pocket, and slid this rectangular device across the table. And instantly, I knew it was the iPhone. Now, at that point, nobody had seen the iPhone. There was one picture of Steve Jobs at a Little League baseball game holding this device. And, you know, the the internet was going wild with speculation about, oh, this is the new Apple's making a phone. I don't know if you remember that picture, but... Anyway, the guy slid the device, his feet on the table slid the device across toward me and said, so how would you design a scroll bar for the, a device like this? Okay. Now, you know, a scroll bar is the thing, you know, you use to move a, you know, a long web page up and down or some other document. Okay. I had no idea this was a touch screen. This just keep in mind, all the Microsoft gizmos, you remember the Palm Pilot, they all have the styluses. This was, you just used your finger. I had no idea. So I f- failed this question badly because I was sort of at a loss. Like, where's the stylus? How does this thing work? And then he said, this is the thing that really got me. He said, so how does it feel to you? I walk in Steve Jobs' office every Tuesday morning at 1030 a.m. And I'm going to show him your work. And he's going to zoom in and look at every pixel of everything you make how does that make you feel to know Steve Jobs is going to be pixel perfect, you know, demanding pixel perfect stuff from what you do? And I'd worked in the film industry forever. I'd been around celebrities a lot. I was just not impressed with this guy. And I didn't give the right answer. You know, I didn't bow down and say, oh, oh, I'm so scared. I'm going to, you know, I, I hope I can do it. I, you know, I didn't do any of that. I just didn't play the game. I just acted cool. And that was my last interview. <laughs> it was over. Uh, he did not, you know, was I that did Scott? not. Yes. Yes. How did you yep. know? Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, yeah, I, I had a feeling you would know. And he, yeah, and he was telling the truth about the pixel thing too. Yeah, Steve yeah. Steve was obsessive about detail down to the, the pixel level. We all were. That's, okay. that's part of what made the, the products great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, that's so funny that you knew who that was, right? You probably could sense it right away. But oh, yeah. uh, I didn't play the game. I'm as not soon a... as you said feet on the desk. Oh, is that it? Was that the tell? Yeah, now he was summarily <laughs> yeah. fired. Uh, we won't even say his last name because he's a decent guy, I'm sure, and there's no need to drag him through the mud. But yeah, uh, he, he had a, a debacle uh, with the maps rollout and, and was gone. Probably not his fault, but he took the axe for it. So, uh, uh, oh, man, I, I, I'm, I could ask you so many Apple questions because I was a, an Apple geek for quite a while. I, I'm an equal opportunity. I, I do Windows and Mac now. But... Um, do you, any any anecdotes from working there? Anything that you learned from there that you've taken into your life that sort of you know made an impact in the way you approach things, into your faith even? I mean, anything of value that you took from Apple in your time there? One thing that I always appreciated about the way Apple approached portraying products and i know that this will seem kind of silly given the hype around the marketing but the ethos was always under promise and over deliver mm -hmm. the goal was always we're going to wow people by what it does regardless of what we said regardless of what marketing would claim it always had to be better than that and i've always appreciated that personally like the that's it's part of the reason that I've always been pseudonymous. Like I, I underplay whatever I know or whatever I do. Cause like, it doesn't matter. You know, you can think absolutely nothing of me or what I'm working on and I'm going to over deliver. I'm going to sneak up on you. Like, Oh wow. I had no idea that was coming. Mm. That's I, I think that for me, like I'm not a, I'm not a big guy. I have to play to my strengths. And so my strength is I will surprise you by being more than you expected in whatever it is. Mm. And that's, that was something that always informed the way we approach things. And I find that respectable and commendable. Yeah, that's, I, um, I have, if, I, I'm not going to tell any more Apple stories because I do have a few more interesting one. Maybe next time you come on, we'll, we'll go one, one level deeper into Apple stuff. Um, but, um, I did, I did want that job and I didn't get it. And I was really bummed because I, 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 you know, the iPhone at that time was probably the hottest piece of technology in the world. Um, and I wanted to work on it. I didn't, I went into it thinking I was going to work on the iPod. I, it was revealed to me that it was actually the mm -hmm. iPhone. Um, I got to see it, um, before anyone had seen it other than, you know, Apple employees, obviously. And, um, I felt, I felt, felt pretty special, um, for having, you know, been yep. granted a glimpse of the magical orb device that's ruined our lives <laughs> since then. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about that. Let's talk about the smartphone. How has the world changed? Is it changed for the better in the time since the smartphone, the iPhone was revealed? I mean, it has totally upended our lives. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to a concert. You can't go anywhere without seeing this mystery device, this black mirror glowing orb of technology people are staring at it has it has it improved our lives as much as it's detrimented or or is there some imbalance there what is the smartphone to you i think it's made everything vastly worse simply because it's so good at so many of the things that it does mm. 
And as a result, it's, it's easy for it to be indispensable. And because it's so personal, it's such a, it was designed to be an intimate product, to be something very personal to you. It's, it's always on your person. It's, you hold it with one hand, you touch it with the other, you put it to your face. Like it's, it's, it's a toothbrush. It's intimate. I don't know. If it's, better. A, it's an electro, it's a technological <laughs> yeah. toothbrush. Yeah, but but it's one that has all your secrets. It's one that is how you connect to loved ones. It's one that is how you do your banking and mm. you get news and information. And, you know, ever since the iPhone came out, I remember one of the very first things that happened famously with the iPhone was when uh, Sully Sullenberger's airplane went down. The very first news That's of that right. that almost anyone saw was an iPhone picture from the Hudson on Twitter back before Twitter even had embedded pictures. So it went on to some other website and the, the tweet's still up from like 2008. And it was one of the very first times that someone had used a smartphone to do something like that. And like today, like, you know, like with the dancing cheerleaders, like you can't go five feet without somebody taking pictures and video of you. But that was novel at the time. And so something that was initially cool, like it was like, the technology is cool, but honestly, you know, another part of, you know, revealing personality, I haven't had a personal cell phone since 2005. Wow. I, I had one for a few years and I saw the flip side of it, which something is invisible to almost everyone, which is, it is by far the greatest surveillance tool mm -hmm. ever invented in the history of humanity. Mm. It is more of a panopticon than any sci-fi writer could have created because the entire ad tech industry is built around personally profiling you, all of your movements, all of your interests, all of the time, and everyone you interact with. That's right. Mapping your social graph, knowing. And so even before the smartphone, I knew that those things were possible just from correlating, you know, cell phone tower pings and text messaging. And Basically, the only person I talked to was my boss, and he he would call me. Like I didn't use my cell phone, so I eventually said, "You know what? I'm I'm paying like forty bucks a month for this. You're the only person who calls me. Will you start paying for this, or I'm going to get rid of it?" And he just laughed at me and said, "My boss never paid for my phone. Yeah, no way." Like, okay, so I canceled my phone. In the next month, he tried to call me. Like, what's going on? Like, I told you, <laughs> and so I I have not had a personal phone since then. Now I carried company phones at the time, but I have not had a I, I I carried cell phones, I carried iPhones, but it was always in the dog food program where the trade-off was I get a free phone and coverage, but I had to live on crappy beta software and file bugs. All right, so but, you're telling me you're part part you currently are part of the Amish 2.0, in that you do not currently own a smartphone. Is that am I hearing you right? That's correct. Now I, my my house is full of devices, of, of course. but I don't have a cell phone. Yep. That is amazing. I I think you may qualify as a founding member of the Amish 2.0. Um, you will receive a handbook through the mail and learn the secret handshake um, at one of our secret meetings. Um, that's a really fascinating story. Um, I, I know there's some people who are trying to move toward these sort of dumb smartphones, like a light phone. Um, there's another one that essentially have no apps. They might have texting on them. Um, maybe an MP3 player, but no apps. I, I think, you know, the youth are sensing that um, the phones have taken over their lives and, and, and are not uniformly good. And in, in some ways, 
may be uniformly bad. So I'm happy to hear that. I'm going to tell um, a few people that it is possible that you're able to do it and, and maybe you can, you know, tweet about it at some point to help people know how you do it. So um, in the next hour, we're going to go straight through no breaks. We're going to start talking about uh, the Lutheran Church and Woe's interactions with the Lutheran Church, where he thinks the denomination is going, where is the church at large going, where is the Christian church at large going, and we'll possibly discuss um, AI and that technology. Stay tuned. We're going to be right The back. Forrest Moretti Show, live. The year was 1872, and fighting from the Civil War had nearly torn the United States apart. The young country had survived, but a new one was taking shape directly within its borders. Along the rift of earth and rock they called Appalachia. A hardy group of Nordic Americans were able to carve out a slice of the land they'd come to love and formed their own republic. A place connected not only by tribal bonds of kinship, but spiritual ties of their Christian faith trouble would come. Strangers from strange lands. With over 400 stunning photographs, Appalachia is an account of the men and women who stopped at nothing to defend their faith, their family, and the land they called home. Appalachia, a photographic novel by Forrest Moretti. You may have noticed all the ads for this show are about my books, my videos, or my website. That's because you are not advertising your business or service or book or video here yet. Listeners to The Forrest Moretti Show are some of the most loyal, brand-specific people you will find on the planet. By advertising on the show, you will not only increase awareness of your brand, you will gain loyal customers who may spend the rest of their lives buying your products. With a social media reach extending across hundreds of thousands, this show in streaming video, audio, and podcast formats will allow you to advertise your business or product effectively and easily. Prices are low now, but will be going up soon. So lock in your payments now and be part of the most important, the most incredible conversation on the planet, The Forrest Moretti Show, an essential part of your advertising network. In the late 1800s, a new disease arrived in North America that claimed the lives of children everywhere. After trial and error, a vaccine was developed that could help, but the shot was dangerous and many parents refused it. In 1932, a new ingredient was added, an ingredient never before tried on humans. Throughout the country, children began to receive it, and within a year, a new mental disorder, unknown to anyone, began to appear. It affected toddlers, mostly boys. Children lost the ability to speak and would take little interest in any other humans, even their parents. The autism vaccine is the story of two of these children and why modern medicine's attempts to explain what happened have come up short. The autism vaccine, the story of modern medicine's greatest tragedy. Available on ForrestMoretti.com and Amazon. Hello friends, Forrest Moretti here. Years ago when I first realized we were being lied to about many things, most notably vaccines, I started making videos on Facebook and YouTube calling out how we were being harmed. 
My Incredible Opinion, they were called. You might remember seeing some of them because they were shared far and wide with millions of views. Facebook and YouTube didn't think very highly of them, and most of them have been removed from the internet at this point. Until now. All the My Incredible Opinion episodes, both seasons of them, almost 200 videos, are available for premium members on my website, forestmoretti.com. This includes the polio videos everyone seemed to love, the organic vaccine video, and the Brady Bunch measles episode people are always asking me about. So if you've been wanting to see them again, they're all easy to be found on my website at forestmoretti.com. And that is my incredible opinion. Hail to the king, baby. It's the Forrest Moretti Show, live. All right, welcome back into the third and final hour of this very special Forrest Moretti Show with a very special guest. Woe, thank you, Woe, for coming on. This has been an incredible conversation so far. I can't imagine the next guest um, will outdo you. Um, but there's always hope. So you have set the bar very high, and we are not even done yet. Um, we're going to talk about um, some interesting things happening within the Lutheran denomination, um, something, some things Woe is keenly aware of. Get his take on that. And I would, hopefully, we'll have some time to talk about AI, specifically artificial intelligence and the way that it relates to our Christian faith. Um, is this something we should be afraid of? If this is, is this something we should embrace? Um, or is, are we, should we be morally ambivalent about it? Um, I have some thoughts on it. I'm sure he does too. Um, if you're listening again um, on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can listen to the show live, which is much more fun, and also perhaps um, leave a message or... Um, a text at our phone number, and um, you can ask a question to Woe or me or someone else. And um, regardless, I, I hope you'll listen in through the podcast or live and um, enjoy the fun live because it is it's more more fun that way. Um, Woe, we were supposed to um, do a quick segment before we get really deep in the weeds here on. Um, we missed the signs of decline, and um, there's another segment we were going to do called the verbal vendetta. And the verbal vendetta is a word that you want removed from the dictionary, or possibly a word or phrase you want added to the dictionary. Um, signs of decline are uh, the IQ of of human species is dropping like a rock, and we see this everywhere, and it's uh, kind of... Uh, fun and dystopian to talk about something you've seen that just proves uh, that humanity is failing. Uh, Woe, do you have a preference for which of those things we talk about before we get into um, your discussion on the Lutheran Church? Let's talk about the words, because that's a good segue. It's really kind of why the Stunt Choir podcast exists. Oh, is that interesting? Okay, so verbal vendetta, it is verbal vendetta, a word or phrase you want retired from the dictionary or possibly added. What is your answer, dear sir? You asked me to give one, okay. and uh, what? I, no limit. I joked when we, we talked. Yeah, well, I, I 
my let, let me give you a tweet. I, I was going back through reading some of the examples I've tweeted just in the past couple months. This is something that I wrote back in uh, November. Want to stay out of trouble? Don't use any conceptual word that came into use in the last 150 years. Congratulations, <laughs> you are now immunized against nearly every modern trick. And sorry for using the word immunized with you. Not perfect. <laughs> I perfect violated usage. my own rule there. But um, yeah, words like gender, problematic, in the context of church brokenness instead of sin. Basically, there's so many words that are used now that deflect from the actual nature of a thing in order to conceal what's really going on. And I think one of the simplest things that people can do is just try to use older words and see if you can still hold the same thought in your head. Because frankly, in, in a lot of cases, you can't. If you abandon modern specific notions and definitions, suddenly it makes the new morals unthinkable because morality didn't change, but the structure of language changed in a way to make new things possible. In the context of a church, that's a huge deal because if you're using new words like racism to create new morality that didn't exist 200 years ago, how is that not a new religion? Which is why I have problems with the state of the Lutheran church today because it's changing in ways that defy scripture and they're using new words and concepts to do it. Yeah, but they're... There's a really interesting phenomenon that I, I want to just mention because I think it helps uh, um, um, undergird what you're talking about. And language, for for those of you who don't know this, you, you probably you've got a lot of smart people listening to the show. I hope, and they they already know this. But um, for people who are dumb like me, I'm just going to explain it. Language, the words you use, form the way you think. Now you, you sort of think, well, no, we just think, and then you know we came up with the language. And then we use words to explain what we think. But the reality is, and there's probably a two-way street here, but the words you learn affect the way you think. Now, I, I always use this example. Eskimos, I, I think they have like 50 words for snow, you, you know, and they have to. We might have snow or ice, and, and that's about it. But when you live within snow, within a cold region... There are all sorts of shades and variations and nuances that you need to describe quickly to be able to warn people, perhaps, that this is snow that's on a frozen lake and it looks like it's deep, but it's actually not. You could fall through. You know, they have a word for that or snow that swirls around the corner and, and forms these little, you know, miniature tornadoes. They have a playful word for that, perhaps. So the language... When people control the language, they actually control the way you think about things. And I think if you can maybe just go a little bit further on what you're saying, this is what's happening with language is it's not an attempt to be cool. It's not necessarily an attempt to find words that explain things in better ways than the old words. It's literally an attempt to control the way we think about things. Is that, am, am I off track in saying that's kind of where, where you're going with this? No, that's exactly what it is. I mean, that's the the reason that 1984 is such a famous novel is that Orwell saw that this was being done, that the rewriting of language to make, as you're saying in, at the very beginning, to make it socially impermissible to use words or concepts eliminates the ability to think in certain ways, which was in the novel. That was the way the government 
maintained people. It's how they controlled things to make things literally unthinkable. Because if you lose the word for a thing, you lose the ability to comprehend it. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons that you know, the other question we're not really going to get to directly, but the descent into ignorance, part of that is the devolution of the language. Mm -hmm. Because when people lose the ability to describe things, it's just taken off the table. They could thank them. And as long as you're, they're entertained with their smartphones and all this other crap, they don't care. Like they're not going to, they're going to think about it. <laughs> they're not going to notice that they've lost something because it was replaced with a shiny bauble. And so I think that eschewing as much as possible new words, especially new words that come from things like psychology are particularly evil. Yeah. There is evil on their face because of the origins of those things. If you take those off the table and you try to use older words to describe what they're trying to describe, particularly in the context of, of a church where you're making moral pronouncements, you find that it's impossible to make those pronouncements without damning everyone in the history of the faith, hmm. which is is the, the battle that we're facing in the church today, is that new sins are being invented in this century, in the last century, and we're being told we go to hell for those things when many of those things were the norm for the rest of the faith for 1900 years. And one of those has to be a lie. Right. Yeah, I've, you know, just sort of on my own, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, I remember I was at a, a flea market and th there was a, a 1940s or 50s textbook on x-rays. And I just started reading through it and... I instantly understood the technology. I mean, it didn't take more than two or three pages for me to to have a firm grasp on on what was going on, and and I've noticed this with some of these um, old educational films, like from the '30s or '40s or '50s. You know, there's a famous YouTube clip expl explaining how um, rear differentials work in cars. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And they use these things like that look like tinker toys to just sort of start at the very yep. basic and they show you how a, you know, a, a not a limited slip differential, but like a normal differential where, you know, the, the back wheels are sort of locked together. And then you, you kind of understand, oh, okay, that's why they had to make them so that the different, the back wheels could spin at different rates. And it's so amazing how more easily understood concepts were 50 years ago. Uh, and this is not because the the concepts have gotten more complex. There, there certainly is that problem amongst technology now, no doubt about it, amongst life itself. Um, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way that we trip over ourselves nowadays to explain things in the lexicon we've been presented with uh, because of this sort of constantly evolving need to change the language. I, I, I think you're right. And the psychology has certainly done it. Um, the progressive left has certainly used it to their advantage in constantly coining new terms um, to use it as a way to expose people who don't understand how to talk. It's sort of like a, a Southern accent, which, you know, I sort of hide my Southern accent as a way to mask where I'm from. I think the progressive left has used all the nomenclature um, you know, of their ideology as a way to sort of signal, you know, your in-group status. Um, I, I wonder, it, the church does that too, right? I mean, you, you see this, it, the church is sort of, I guess the progressive church is, is just another wing of the progressive left, I suppose, but I'm sure th th they do this as well, right? 
Yeah, and, and that's the problem because that's no longer church. Uh, one of the points that Corey and I frequently make on Stone Choir is that how is it that MSNBC and CNN and Facebook and their terms of service have exactly the same morality as our pastors when it comes to this whole laundry list of things that we're told is right or wrong? How is it that CNN and somebody in the pulpit completely agree on morality? Because on paper, CNN's not getting their morality from God. They're not getting it from Scripture. They're, clear, they're clearly antithetical to anything remotely Christian. And yet pastors are saying exactly the same thing as them in lockstep with the whole world. And so the point that we make on Stone Choir frequently is that what is the origin of this? Where did this idea come from? Because how did you find in the Bible something that the executives at these media companies found in the most evil places in the world? Why are you speaking the same language in the same moral terms? And how did I end up on the wrong side of it if I think I'm a Christian too? Somebody is on the wrong side of Scripture, and I think it's probably CNN. <laughs> yeah, you know, growing up in, in a Baptist church where I grew up with the youth group, and, you know, I would say um, I was an outstanding uh, church member. Uh, in ter- I'm not going to say in terms of my faith, but, you know, I said the right things. I did the right things um, to not ruffle any feathers at that point in my, my spiritual journey. And, and, you know, one of the... The, the despite my immaturity, we learned scripture like James 4, 4, you know, you adulterous people do not, um, do not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God and the, do not be conformed. You, you know, this scripture was pounded in our heads um, at a, a very sort of um, mainstream youth group experience. Like we all knew this. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Do not be conformed. Uh, These things were Christianity 101 is you will be persecuted for your faith. You will stand out. You will not be like everyone else. Be prepared for this to happen. And for some reason, there's this entire arm of Christianity, which seems to revel in being adored by the world. They want to earn the 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 likes and the clicks and the follows and the clout of the world. And I just wonder where did that spidey sense that was so, that felt to me so basic of the Christian faith is you are not going to get along very well with people if you cling to the faith. Uh, Why, why has, they, they call it big Eva and maybe you can explain to our listeners what big Eva is. Why has big Eva what, who are they, and why do they want to be friends with the world? Why, why are they so obsessed with that? The Big Eva question is one that really, I think, comes down to the, the evolution of Christianity, at least in North America in the 20th century. You know, you have Roman Catholic Church, and you had the, what are called the mainline Protestant churches, you know, Methodism, Episcopalianism, that swung left first they went kind of hard left and they became worldly and then kind of not in the middle secularly but the the third category were what were called the evangelicals which was the most baptists conservative lutherans in contrast with the liberal lutherans from a completely separate body 
and in a number of others, some some of the some Presbyterians also on both sides of that, some very liberal Presbyterians, some very conservative ones. You know, a lot of the reformed are typically more on the conservative side. The conservatives were the big evil, the big evangelicals who were kind of in the 80s, the moral majority mm. when there was this period of time where there's kind of a reemergence of a form of Christianity in the political sphere. But it was limited to things like abortion and drugs and maybe some crime stuff, you know, really big ticket things. But it didn't really inform daily life. And what has happened is exactly what you said. Those bodies that were at one time at least some sort of public social bulwark for Christian ethos in, in the public sphere realized that the more they played ball with the rest of the world, with, with the mainline denominations, the more popularity they would have in all the places of share spaces. So the better, you know, more favorable media coverage they would get. Yeah. And it goes back to the, the, your very first comment about the, the feminization of society and of all this. And the fact that feminine thinking is oriented around consensus and against in-group belonging. And that's the one thing that, Although evangelicalism initially was, as you said, you know, when you went to Baptist summer camp, the the idea of fitting in was anathema. It was just, of course, that's not going to happen. But as everything became slightly more feminized, just an orientation, not necessarily in behavior, but just in the thought process of, I got to fit in. If people are mad at me, I must have done something wrong. And so that is why, you know, we were talking about in the first hour men who are willing to fight. It's not about being pugnacious. It's not about picking fights. It's about being willing to be criticized, to be willing to be the James 4-4 man that doesn't go along. And you take your lumps. And if if you're at enmity with the world, know that that means that it's working. Right. And I think that Christians have just lost that. We we think if if someone's mad at us, you know, if you're getting hit pieces written in the local paper, or Rolling Stone, that means you're doing it wrong. That's baffling. Like, that's the exact opposite of Scripture. But it's where most of the churches have landed today, and they're de-Christianizing in the process. Yeah, we—it um, it pains me to say this. Um, in, in the wonderful, historic Baptist church that I grew up in, um, that my father has been a member, he is the longest-living member of this church that, you know, started in 1804, you know, it's been around, you know, 220 some years. And, and my father happens to be the oldest living member. Uh, I think the longest member, if I'm not mistaken, something amazing. Um, years ago, they, they broke uh, from their denomination and embraced uh, wokeness, embraced, you know, a tiny sliver of change. And, and that was they wanted deacons to, uh, they wanted women to be allowed to be deacons. This was just such a minor quibble. We're not asking them to be pastors. There are women in this church who want to serve in that way. And who are we to say they can't do that? Um, obviously, at the time, seemed like not a big deal to, to a lot of people. Um, currently, the newsletter for this church often features um, advertisements for Enneagram retreats. Enneagram is this sort of um, cultish 
strange um, psycho babble personality reading thing. If you're, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Well, but uh, if if listeners aren't, it, it's a very very odd. Even the the symbol they use looks like you just instinctively go, "Oh, that's some satanic symbol," um, but it's it's essentially a, a very um, completely pagan um, psychological psychobabble bunch of BS. It, it really is. I don't know how else to say it. And and the, the newsletters also feature um, articles about prayer breathing. Okay. Uh, prayer breathing and prayer walking the prayer circle, you know, drawing these designs on the ground and chanting these. Uh, it, it's essentially, it is turning the church into something as mystical and new age as possible while still retaining the thinnest veneer of Christian faith possible. And this was a once great church and it has totally fallen. It is friends with the world. It is at it has enmity with God, and they don't see it. And it all started with this tiny request that some of the women be allowed to be deacons, and and now they've come to this point. What what has happened in the Lutheran Church? Well, what are you seeing? I, I'm assuming it's something similar to this. It's not there yet, but it's not only on that trajectory, but I think it's going to go flying past it. Oh, I, uh, yikes. I, I did a, a thread last fall as I was kind of realizing, I, I was dwelling on the last few years of battle that I've had with mainly pastors in the inside my own denomination. And it was, you know, online battles. Trying to figure out, like, why am I at enmity with my denomination? Like, that's that's abnormal because I was I was raised Lutheran. I was raised in this from from my youngest days. I was baptized and then catechized as a Missouri Synod Lutheran. And as I was thinking about what happened, I, I did a thread where I described what had what had played out in my life was that I was raised as a Lutheran. I've been Lutheran every day of my life since I was like baptized, like three. Mm-hmm. I never really paid much attention to my faith because it was just sort of there. Like I was, I wasn't, I wasn't an indifferent Christian. It was just kind of a Sunday thing for me. Right. And so I always believed it. I didn't, I didn't take it not seriously. I just thought that it was kind of localized on Sunday morning and don't stray too far from those lines. And so as I, in, in my adult life, I didn't pay attention to church politics. I didn't follow any of that stuff in part because a lot of my childhood, because of my family situation, was kind of defined by those battles. And so that turned me off, not not wanting church to be a place of battle and contention. I saw that as a kid. I didn't want that as an adult. So I was happy to, like, as long as the conservatives are in trouble, or as long as the conservatives are in charge, which is what I'd heard and been told, like, I don't need to worry about it. And so the transition I talked about in the first hour, where I stopped talking about politics and started talking about my faith, was that faith. It was my the faith that I had received as a child. I had been catechized. Like I, I went to Lutheran uh, middle school and high school from 6th through 12th grade. So my whole upbringing was really a very intensely focused Lutheran upbringing, and it was great. I'm, I'm thankful for that. When I started talking about my faith online with guys, a lot of the things that I'd been taught you know, at age 14 started pouring out. Like I just remembered stuff that I hadn't thought for 30 years. 
And it was like, I, I, I typed something out like, wow, that's a really good answer. Where'd that come from? It's, it's what I've been forced to memorize for confirmation. And it was relevant. Like it was exactly what was necessary to explain the world to someone who didn't know about God or the Bible at all. And so what I realized happened last fall is I was trying to figure out how did, how was I raised Lutheran, but now I'm fighting with Lutherans. I realized that in a way I'm kind of like a, a Rip Van Winkle Lutheran because I was a, I was a time capsule sealed up, you know, 30 years ago and not paying any attention to the developments. And so when I cracked open that time capsule, it was just what I had been taught then. It was completely normal in the 80s and early 90s. It was what Lutherans taught. It's what they believed. Like it wasn't a super conservative version of the Lutheran Church, Missouri said. It was just, it was what everyone believed. When I started saying those things in 2020, all the pastors lost their minds. They got furious that I would be saying those things. And, and I, specifically, what, what sort of things would you have said? Just, just give us an example of how far did you take it? Well, it's, The, the problem that the church faces today is that the attacks on the church and on the world are not in the vein of previous attacks. Satan, you know, in, in, the, in the 16th century, Satan was going after justification, and the whole Reformation was fought over, how are we justified before God? How are we saved? Mm -hmm. Because Rome was teaching one thing, and the Reformers, like, well, this, you know, indulgences and these things that are based on works— that's not what's in the Bible. And so the split then was about that. And most of the theology developed in the 1600s addressed that conflict. And the problem is that almost most of the church bodies, particularly Lutheranism, Lutheranism, are resting on those laurels. They have the Book of Concord, which has sound doctrine. I hold to it now. But it doesn't address what's happening in the 21st century, which is things like gender versus sex, things like sexual, not promiscuity, but deviation from male and female, he created them. You know, all these things, all the all the modern things that are called woke that are seen as degeneracy, there's nothing in the 16th century writings mm. about them because they were unthinkable. Yeah. None of that stuff was happening then. And so I was engaging in those questions in the thought process of of a Lutheran, which is, what does the Bible say? I'm going to believe what God says, and if that means I'm an enmity with the world, well, okay, that means it's working. And so that's where the conflict was. It wasn't that the specific doctrines that I was regurgitating and espousing were at odds with what the church taught. It's that when I was looking at contemporary applications of those beliefs, like, you know, a man is a man and a woman is a woman— there are certain downstream thoughts that are necessarily a part of that, you know, including things like female deacons, female pastors, which is an oxymoron, because it's an ontological question. It's not a question of whether a woman is capable of preaching, just like it's not a question of whether a woman is capable of being a political pundit. The question is whether it's suitable for her to be doing that because it is not her role. It's not about, it's not about credibility. It's about how we're created. Mm -hmm. And so all these things are really kind of trannyism because saying, well, men can do this and women can do this. And if they're swapping, that's fine. You know, we all have these gifts. That was, that was the nose under the camel's tent in your father's church. 
the same thing is happening today in Lutheranism with all these other things where worldly attacks, no one's able, at least within Lutheranism, it seems to me that the vast majority of even the guys that were told are trained theologians are not capable of just reading their Bibles, opening them up and saying, okay, how can I apply what's in Scripture to this situation? They first look to the world, and they make sure that they conform to whatever the world's social mores are, or the world's morality is. Mm -hmm. And as long as it conforms with that, then we'll let Scripture have something to say. But, you know, which is why things like there's stuff in the Old Testament that's decidedly against modern views on things like homosexuality and the like. That that makes them uncomfortable. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. So when I said what was in the Bible, they lost their minds. And I realized it was because I just believed what I was taught as a child. And the church in the meantime was changing while I wasn't paying any attention. So when I looked again, it had changed. I was the I was the same guy just believing the old stuff. And everyone around me had lost their minds. Mm. I I think, um, you know, I've thought about this problem a lot in that I was, um, years ago, my family and I were attending a um, Orthodox Presbyterian church, and mainly not, not because of doctrinal alignment, but because we loved the people there. We really did. It was, it was true Christian fellowship in a way we had never experienced before. And, um, you know, despite our sort of theological divide, um, we were happy there, but I was constantly aware, you know, this is super, super high church uh, teaching, you know, hour-long sermons, you know, fit for a PhD candidate um, to critique. And and for the intellectual in me, it was kind of fun. And, you know, I kind of got into it. Um, but I was thinking the whole time there's enemy at the gates and no one is saying anything about it. It's, it's there right outside. Um, they're coming for us and we can't say a word about it. And that was really the beginning of sort of a journey um, for me as a Christian that sort of ended up in this new denomination where I feel like the church is not the right um, context to talk about these things. I think I have this, you know, my, my hierarchy, um, has tribes in it. It has tribes of people um, that are like-minded, that look alike, that speak alike, and and have the same faith. And church emerges from that. The worship of God emerges from that. But all these sorts of social questions, like homosexuality, trans, um, any of these things, are not really appropriate to bring up in a worship service. There's kids there. There's there's all kinds of things that just they're just not great to talk about. And my opinion is the church is, in a way, is doing its job, but we have this other uh, societal construct, which is tribes, which are sort of the channel through which men project fear of violence and stigma, and those are missing. And that's really the problem is the more I thought about it, I, I used to get really angry that they would never speak about, you know, the LGBTQ this or the trans this. And I would look around and see all these beautiful, innocent children sitting in the pews, taking notes during the sermon, which is just so amazing. And I thought, I don't want them to hear about this. I don't want them to know about this. This is not something they should even think about, you know, in passing, in, in veiled language. This is a worship service. And so I, I'm just curious what you've seen in the Lutheran church 
or, or, or how you feel about this. Uh, you, you know, it's sort of a strange concept that the church is an extension of tribe. It's an, an extension of being around like-minded people who have nearly everything in common. You know, we have churches that divide uh, all the time into wor- separate worship services because they can't agree on the same kind of music. Now, how in the world as a pastor are you supposed to hold together a flock in unity when they can't even agree on the same kind of music to sing in the church service? Now, forget about predestination this or justification, atonement, you know, free will, whatever, you know, when all this stuff's going to get argued about, you know, it's like you feel like churches have no hope for unity. Um, So I wish you could kind of maybe explain the Lutheran church, because, you know, the Lutherans were kind of weirdos growing up Baptist. They were, were they kind of like Catholics or was that the Episcopals? You know, did they do the kneeling and the, the crazy outfits? What is the Lutheran, what's a Lutheran church service like for those people, uh, you know, those Christians who don't know, what is, how does the denomination sort of slot into the the spectrum of Christianity? And 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 I'll ask the second question later, but can you just sort of explain the denomination and just kind of give us an idea of where they are in terms of their worship and and their beliefs and maybe their distinctive beliefs? I'll get to that, but I, I first want to talk about the nature of church itself. Yeah, yeah. It goes about what you were saying. I think it's important to distinguish between church, the church service in a particular denomination or not a denomination on Sunday morning where you gather together collectively for worship. that That's church. Like, we all know that's church. But everyone there is also the church. Mm-hmm. All believers are the capital C church. And so there's there are two things happening simultaneously. There's, there's the pu- public proclamation of the word, you know, gathering together around word and sacrament. And the, you know, and, and as you said, there are certain things that kids shouldn't necessarily be hearing. There's actually something that Luther dealt with in his day. There were things that related to sexual deviancy that the Carthusian monks were importing into Germany, but no one in Germany was familiar with them. So there are a few passages in Genesis that he actively avoided so as not to raise them in the church because the degeneracy that God condemned was alien to Germans. Like it didn't exist. So it went even further than kids don't need to hear this. He didn't want anyone to hear it. And it wasn't shame or censoring God. It was just, this is something that is currently unthinkable and I don't want to introduce it to innocent ears. And so I think that's completely sound in the context of the church service where you have, you know, 10 year old boys and girls taking notes on the sermon. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean that there's no place for it in that related context, which is kind of the capital C church. Like you have all these believers together in a community with shared faith, shared whatever they have in common are also facing all things you said were at the gates. All these other problems that are not only immediate and severe, but they're also theological in nature. Sexuality is theological in nature. It's not a political issue. It's also a political issue, but it's from God. And so Christians have something to say about that. Now, the context is important. It Maybe it doesn't belong on Sunday morning or, you know, the kids go to Sunday school and the adults are having a different set of discussions. But what I personally don't want to see happen is to have the small C church, the local 
church gathering collapse into something that's irrelevant to what's happening in the world because that's i think that's what satan is taking advantage of today he's taking advantage of the kind of apathy that i demonstrated for most of my adult life like you know there's there's the sunday stuff and i hear the sermon and then i go on with my life and try not to do too much bad stuff where that is an excuse to then be not at enmity with the world because if you go along to get along suddenly you've compromised all the things in the Bible that you forgot were in there, and somebody's got to talk about them. And so historically, that's what the Missouri Synod has done. Like the, the Missouri Synod was founded in 1847, I believe, and it, they came over from Germany. It was, it was a much more conservative version of Lutheranism that, than what existed, certainly than what exists today. Um, and there, there were some slightly more liberal versions of Lutheranism already in the U.S., but by modern standards, they were all basically Nazis <laughs> compared to the way, you know, everyone is behaving today. Right. You know, when I say Nazi, I'm, I'm just saying conservative. I'm saying Christian. That's I don't say that pejoratively. Right. The and it, it is mostly traditionally it is high church, or how it's described. You know, the the albs the what what Luther did, what the what the Lutherans did, was to remove the false doctrine from Rome and preserve anything that didn't have to be thrown away, which was the opposite of what the Radical Reformation did. They said, we're going to have, you know, the regulative principle. We're basically starting from scratch, and we're not going to do anything that's not directly in the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Lutheran Reformation was fundamentally very conservative. It's like, what is the the smallest possible amount of change to what Rome was doing already, because they saw that as their inheritance too. They just want the false doctrine to be removed. And so if something wasn't false doctrine, they preserved it because it was tradition. Like it wasn't that it would be sinful not to do it. It's just that it was salutary to do it. And so to this day within the Missouri Synod, there are some congregations that frankly look more Roman Catholic than a lot of Roman Catholic congregations today. Wow. I've sent live streams to guys and they've been like, wow, I wish my I wish my Latin mass church looked like this. Um, but there are also Lutheran churches that look Baptist. You'd never have any idea they were Lutheran, including mm -hmm. when they talk. <laughs> but and so they're all in the same umbrella, which is absurd. Yeah. Uh, but the the prop but the proper form does preserve those traditions, not because they're a law, but because they're a useful teaching practice. And in, in one of the things that's important in Lutheranism is that and we don't call it the worship service. We call it the divine service, which is it's just you know, it's a linguistic thing, but it's where's the focus? If it's a worship service, then questions of, well, I like this music more than that music become much more important because you're like, well, I, I want to worship and uplift to God. Here's here's my musical offering. Yeah. And it's it's focused on you, what you're doing. The Lutheran emphasis is on this is God's stuff coming to us. So we call it the divine service because it's coming from heaven down to us. That's that's the view of it. And so it's not me focused. It's not individualistic. It's God's gifts being presented in a way that, you know, is reflective of the solemnity of the of the occasion. Yeah. And so it's it, that informs the worship practice, but in, again, it's it's not a law. It's not that you're going to hell if you do it the other way. It's just it's a good teaching tool that you know, just like those those little kids in the OPC church were taking notes. A Lutheran, you know, that age isn't going to be taking notes, and the sermons are a lot shorter. But they have a reverence 
that's missing from a lot of other churches. Mm -hmm. I think that's also important. Now, um, now, did Luther, was he, like, you know, Calvin has this kind of reputation of being a tyrant, you know, uh, uh, burning the guys he didn't like and, um, you know, reveling in the death of, of his enemies. Um, was Luther like that? Does he have sort of a secret, um, a secret, I don't want to say secret, but, you know, does he have sort of a mean streak in him like Calvin apparently did? Or or is he sort of a, a different guy? I mean, do Lutherans, do they do they like Calvin? Or what? what's the relationship there between those two <laughs> church? Is that kind of million-dollar question? <clears throat> Calvin was certainly closer to Luther than Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli was theologically monstrous by our standards. Mm-hmm. Calvin was was an error, but the, there are some writings from Luther that were contemporaneous that had to do with the peasants' revolt, uh, and also, frankly, the the Book of Concord itself, as it was being compiled between fifteen twenty odd and fifteen eighty, was dealing with the Muslims, you know, at the gates of Vienna. Like that, that invasion was ongoing, and so throughout the Lutheran confessions. They're actually addressed to the emperor, and they're addressed to the emperor in terms of, we have the Turks at the gate, you know, the Muslims at the gate. We need to get on the same page in our lands as Christians so that we can repel this foreign invasion. We need to kill these people because they're going to topple Christendom if we don't get rid of them. And so he was he was focused on order, but whatever violence was considered licit within Lutheranism, it wasn't directed at heretics usually, you know, you know false doctrine. I, I think the exception would be the Anabaptists, the, the, because the, the, the radical reformers, the Anabaptists initially were wildly violent. They're the ones burning down churches, destroying things. There was a lot of murder and hate mayhem in the early days. And when, you know, when guys looking at Catholic answers today want to point fingers at the Reformation, that's the stuff they point at and say, look, you guys were all violent and crazy. And, you know, most of us are saying that wasn't us at all. Like Luther condemned that as strongly as anyone because it was evil. Mm-hmm. Burning down churches and, and killing people was evil. But let's discuss these things and get on the same page. And if we have to split our churches, that's fine. But you don't need to kill the people in the other denomination to get there. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think about the... Um... You know, as someone who admittedly has some sort of um, heterodox Christian beliefs, uh, meaning outside of the norm, you know, uh, Romans ten nine is a, sort of a favorite verse of mine, which you know says, if you um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And for a lot of people, not just me, a lot of Christians, they this is sort of the entry entry point into the Christian faith is you'll be saved if you if you meet this criteria. You know, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Okay, check. Do that. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Yep, check. Do that. Um, I often wonder, where does the animosity come from? Uh, enough so that people are, are burned mercilessly at the stake to make an example to others because of of something, a difference in belief far beyond that. I'm, I'm not going to say something close to that. I'm just going to say something as 
as seemingly trivial as should children be baptized at birth or not. You know, I, I don't, I, I, maybe that's not the right topic, but my, I guess my question to you is, was that, was that typical? Was that a, a, was that a, a result of just some, a sign of the times of the culture they lived within? Or is that the natural state of mankind in that um, for someone to suggest that they believe something else and that it's right is to suggest that I'm wrong and and my pride will not allow that. And so I will wish death upon you um, because I, I it is an assault to my pride that you are insinuating that I'm wrong. Um, I don't know. Are, are we going to go there again? Are we likely as, as Christians to go there again, um, to, you know, to this level of enmity amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or was that just something, you know, an anomaly? What, what do you think was going to happen? I think the only way to evaluate the question historically is to acknowledge the fact that every church was functionally a national church. Hmm. You had a territory, and within that territory, there was an established denomination. And, you know, that was this, this was why the Lutherans were appealing to the elector of Saxony and others to say, we are in your realm. Here, we believe, is a sound confession. This is what we teach. This is what we want you to believe. And if you believe it, this should be the belief in your realm because fundamentally a nation is a superset of a household in your household as the head as the man everyone should believe what you believe right you know by and large and so theologically a nation is functionally the same which is completely at odds with you know everything post-enlightenment post-enlightenment we have the notions of freedom of religion, which used to mean something radically different than it does today. So when you look back, you have to consider that the the realm, you know, the, the sword was going to be associated with preserving the faith, which goes to the other part of this, which is when does the sword come out and when do we continue to write treatises? And I, I, th- I think the way you framed it in terms of ego is is correct, is that a lot of people just get really nervous when you say they're wrong, which I think is also, it's it's a longstanding trend of feminization among people. You know, I, I'm free with saying you're someone is wrong about something, but it's never intended as a personal attack mm-hmm. because if someone tells me I'm wrong, well, A, I think they're wrong, but I don't take it personally. Like, okay, well, we have a disagreement. Let's find where we have common ground and then try to build to the point where we're on the same page. And if there's an impasse, there's an impasse. And if this person hates me for it, okay. But I'm not worried about it because my identity isn't rooted in their opinion of me. I think that most people don't are too afraid of being disliked. And so it does become self-defense. If someone has a different view than you, you have the, you know, the fight or flight response when yeah. really it should just be a discussion. And when it, when it gets to the national realm, it changes because some things are actually threats to the faith. You know, I think when, when someone comes along and says, hey, I think girls should be allowed to be deacons, you don't get out the sword right away, but there's an inexorable path from that 
to Enneagram in circling and stuff. Yeah. By the way, the Enneagram symbol is a demonic sigil. And that came, the Enneagram itself was a demonic revelation. The origin of that is literally demonic. It came in a vision from a demon. That's oh. what they're teaching overtly. Like the story of it is, it's supernaturally evil. It's not just woo-woo. It's not just weird. It's actually specifically evil straight from they, hell. Isn't it? They, they acknowledge it's spirit it, writing or something. That's the origin of it. Isn't that what the term they use? It, is it, is that yeah, kind of like what uh, Joseph yeah, but, Smith channeled the um, the plates? I, I don't know if that, yeah. that might not be the same thing. I, I don't want to offend my yeah. our Mormon friends. Which, but anyway, uh, what were you going to say? When th there is a point where it is necessary to say this is a threat to the faith. Right. And it's it's a hard question because there's room for disagreement and there's there's room for like, you know, Corey and I are overtly Lutheran. We've done episodes because a lot of people ask, like the, the Stone Choir podcast isn't intended to proselytize for Lutheranism per se, but a lot of people ask like, okay, well, you, what do you believe? Like you asked like about liturgy and things. So we did an episode on communion and we did an episode on baptism because those are two doctrines that really divide us from everyone else. And we believe there's a scriptural basis for that, but it's important something we often say is that it's okay for me to say, here's where you and I disagree. Let's just put it out on the table. These are the differences. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's where you're coming from. Here's how we ended up here. And is there common ground? And then how do we orient what we believe and what we say around scripture? Because if one of us got something not from scripture, that's probably where we should rearrange this thing. But it's okay to say, I think you're wrong. That's not a personal attack. It's not a slight it's just, it's acknowledgement that we're not saying the same thing. That's the beginning of a good discussion, shouldn't be the end of it. That's interesting because um, what you said about the Christ, uh, churches being essentially an extension of national uh, nationalism in a way is fascinating because at that point to suppose a, a doctrinal difference is to suppose um, a treason in a way <laughs> in that... Uh, the nation is defined by the church, and um, to break from doctrine is a threat to the nation. Um, that's something I'm going to think about because of of my belief that church is an extension of tribe and nation is an extension of tribe as well. Um, I, I don't think nations can form um, from anything but tribes, um, and and maybe that's not true. Maybe um, nations can form from churches. You know, uh, maybe a common uh, doctrine is enough to form a nation. And and I think about this a lot because I, I don't think, you know, America is going to make it much longer. I don't think many nations in the world are going to make it much longer. And as we sort of um, enter this final little segment of the show, I, I just wanted to ask you, um, where do we go from here? What do you think the future holds in the next, let's say, two to five to ten years for not only America, but other um, sort of old school nations, um, are we going to make it? Are, are we going to come together and find unity in some way? Or is there likely to be uh, division and chaos? What's your sort of dystopian vision of the next few years? <laughs> the full answer would be long and, and no one would sleep if I gave it. But <laughs> briefly, I will say that 
nation has the same root word as natal. Nation is blood. Nation is descent. It's relatives. So I think your your earlier form, formulation is correct. There's no such thing as a proposition nation. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a multi-ethnic nation. That's also an oxymoron. There's their countries that have multiple nations together. Those are called empires. When you have multiple races in one place, they can coexist, but they're always going to fundamentally break down at the tribal level, which is what we saw with the BLM riots. That was fundamentally tribal warfare. And it was it was portrayed as as you know, woke versus whatever and left versus white, right? But it's fundamentally tribal because that's that's how God made us. He he made different people and put us in different places. And while we should be able to coexist as neighbors, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily good order for that to be the case. Now, going back to something you said at the, the very beginning of the show, the earliest part of the intro, you're talking about the 250th anniversary coming up. Yes, this is something I, I noticed a year ago. I've been talking about occasionally for a while is that nobody talks about it. 2026 is the 250th anniversary of the United States being formed. And no one's saying a word. Yeah. Now, I was born in 77, just after 1976, which was the 200th anniversary. And even as a young kid, I still remember the afterglow from the bicentennial celebrations. Like, there, you know, there were coins, there were, it was just everywhere in the culture 50 years ago, you know, just before I was born, I'm 47. So I missed it, but I still remember it because it was that impactful on the country. There's nobody talking about the 250th. And I actually went back and looked. There were a lot of people talking about the 150th. There are a lot of people in 1926 talking about the 150th anniversary. So it is, it's not that the 50s don't get any attention. It's that no one thinks about the future at all. It's something else I've, I point out is that nobody talks about the 22nd century. You know, we're close enough now that any kid born today is probably going to see the 22nd century. And yet no one ever talks about it at all. That's complete sci-fi. It's seen as just like so distant that if we were a proper civilization, we would be building towards the 22nd century instead of worrying about the next election cycle because one of those is going to get us where we need to go. And the long view is the only view that's going to work. And the fact that everything has been so short-term is destructive. I think is the root of so much of this destruction. People just want to go along to get along and make it to the next quarter and keep their head down and stay out of trouble and think somebody else will take care of it. It's not my problem. Yeah, I I remember I'm a little bit older than you, and I do remember the 200th celebration. We had a huge ceremony at, at the church I just mentioned. And in fact, we uh, they had a giant rope. I'll never forget this, a giant rope leading out from the bell tower. Uh, down, you know, through the balcony, and we all tugged on the rope to ring the bell. Um, you know, I'm assuming there was some symbolic ringing it 200 times, or I don't know the count. But uh, that was etched in my memory, you know, a huge celebration of patriotic music. And the fact, as you mentioned, uh, there, this is the kind of celebration that ought to be years in the making. There ought to be an entire economic stimulus created from the numbers of people being employed to build things 
to write music, to celebrate, speakers to be hired. And uh, it, it feels like a pipe dream that that will even make it that far. I, I, I don't know, but um, I, I think that's a really uh, poignant observation is that, um, you know, o- Olympics are, are decided upon years in advance and and they feel like they should be less significant. It happens every four years. You know, nations rarely make it 250 years. I mean, this is an incredible achievement or should be thought of such in, in other circumstances, but there's a cloud hanging over us and I think everybody feels it and, and there's very little to celebrate. And it, it, it is a, a real, uh, it, it's a real poignant observation that no one's talking about it. I, I'm going to have to look into this and see if anyone has, um, has found it. Um, we just got a few minutes left here. So uh, before we go, I, I just want to thank you again, Well, this has been really interesting. I, I hope you'll consider coming on again because there were about two or three ginormous topics I wanted to get into that I think people would um, really find interesting. I, I'd love to hear your take on artificial intelligence. Um, I'd love to hear your take about um, con- conservative uh you know, building things back the way they were versus building things new and starting over. There's a bunch of that stuff that I, I would love to talk to you about. Um, and we're just going to have to save it for another time. Um, I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I think um, your cohort, Corey Mahler, is going to be able to come on in a few weeks. Um, I'm sure there'll be some fireworks there. Um, he, he has um, less less of a filter than you, from what I can tell. Um, I would I would consider that a compliment in some ways, um, but I, I appreciate all the things you said. Can you just sort of mention to everyone your podcast, where they can find you, where you're most active at, and how they might get um, a, a sense of of your stuff? Yeah, uh, if you want to hear our podcast every week, it's the Stone Choir podcast. You can find us on all the podcast players. Uh, if you listened to Spotify, there is one episode that they censored after about a month. Uh, you'll be able to guess which one it is once you get into it. <laughs> as, as you said earlier, we do touch on a lot of controversial subjects, but it's not to be inflammatory. You know, we Most of our episodes are 90 minutes to two hours long, and we try to make the scriptural case and the reason case for why in the 21st century it's still okay to talk about things in an 1800s or 1900s fashion. And if that means we're at enmity with the world, well, maybe there's something wrong with the world. Amen. So we're not controversial. You know, we're not controversial because we want to stir stuff up. We're trying to say it's actually okay to be Christian and believe what your great grandparents believed. Uh, it's That's very <laughs> important to me. Uh, for now, you can find me on Twitter at Treble Will. I'm, I'm probably shutting that down because I'm sick of the censorship. And when I come back, we'll talk about, you know, AI and how that's, participating and shaping all the discourse in the world. Uh, you, you mentioned Corey being kind of more of a firebrand to me. Really, we have virtually identical views. We have different approaches sometimes, but you know, I, I agree with basically, basically everything he posts. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are days when I cringe at what he posts just because it's going to make people misunderstand, but that's why he posts. Yeah. So, you know, what you can say in 280 characters is fundamentally different than what you can say in two hours. That's... And so... You know, it's the, the, the tweets aren't bait, but they're an example that there's a lot of meat 
that most people will never hear because they just want to have a knee-jerk response. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Woe, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Be sure to listen to the next episode with Bill Schlegel. And uh, be sure to listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple or catch me on the website at forestmoretti.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. I hope that you have a wonderful week. <laughs>